With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My colleague and I were sent to explore the Mariana Trench. Written by Eek Peak. Based to doctors, are you two ready? Ready. We said it in unison though he sounded more worried than I did. The voices of the scientists back at the base came out loud and clear through speakers that connected to the built-in audio. We responded by pushing in a button and talking into a long, thin microphone. This was supposed to be a dream come true, but I admit I was just as nervous as my colleague. It was around a four-hour trip, and I had spent a lot of it reminiscing on everything that had got me to this point in my life, descending down into one of the Earth's deepest points, a vast abyss of secrets, a trench that held so many unknown species of life, a place only very few had seen with their own two eyes. I was excited and panicked on the inside, but seemed unbothered on the outside. My colleague was quiet as well, I assumed he was doing the same thing as we drifted down into the water. We both looked out of the front window of the submersible device that we helped build. Our faces were expressionless. Descending. 1,000 meters. 2,000 meters. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with water. Pools, oceans, lakes, rivers, and seas. You name a body of water and I bet that I loved it. At first, I only had an interest in swimming. As I got older though, I started to take a fascination in marine life. That fascination turned into a career eventually, and I went on to become a marine biologist. A successful one at that. I had my bachelor's degree, master's degree, and PhD. I never really dated because I was so focused on school. My biggest supporters were always my parents. When I was in my late 30s, I was working in a research lab in Europe. Back then, I was at the top of my game. I was well known in my profession and had chances to work with some of the world's smartest scientists. My one colleague and I had been discussing an exploration with other scientists and engineers. A private one, but a big and costly one. My colleague was the only other biologist that I had worked with that had the same PhD as I did. If this idea we had were to happen, he would be going with me. At first, we had talked about doing a deep exploratory dive about 200 meters down in the Pacific Ocean. This fun and interesting idea turned into taking an exploratory expedition into the Mariana Trench. At one point, my colleague even suggested that we see if we could get all the way down to Challenger Deep, an even deeper point of the ocean, lying at the southern end of the Mariana Trench. For an entire year, it was nothing but talk. 
until one of the engineers started to make it into reality. The engineer gathered all of us inside of the conference room. There is a huge diagram on the whiteboard located at the front of the room. It was a blueprint of some submersible device. He handed out copies of the blueprint for us to examine while he went through the process. He had designed a submarine that was able to withstand thousands of pounds of pressure. He explained how it would work, and it's safe to say everyone in the room was completely on board. Once the project was approved, everyone got to work. We spent eight months preparing for our expedition. We had everything down to a perfect science. The current, the weather, the day, the submersible, our suits, the coordinates. Everything was planned down to the last nitty-gritty detail. We had spent so much time preparing physically, I think I forgot to prepare emotionally. Though, even if I did, I don't think it would have made what happened any easier. This is what people like me lived for. This experience that we were about to do. Engineers and scientists spent over an hour getting on our suits the morning of the expedition. They weren't meant to withstand thousands of pounds of pressure, but we still needed to be safe. Oxygen levels were checked. The submersible was triple checked. Everything was tight and completely sealed off. I thought about the last time I told my parents that I had loved them. I thought about my dog and my friends, my fellow biologists. I thought about my couch and my TV. Lastly, I thought about mankind. I was submerging thousands of meters down. The thought of discovering the unknown made all those years of school worth it. What if I got to name a new species of fish? I thought about what I would name it. I thought about what my colleague was thinking. But we both just sat there. We stared in silence. Listening to the water whoosh by us as we descended further and further away from the surface. 8,000 meters. The pit in my stomach widened. Everything was so dark. We had seen an occasional shark and plenty of well-documented species of fish. We documented an interesting-looking anglerfish and a black jellyfish. Other than that, just darkness. 9,000 meters. My colleague finally said something. He's the one who really pushed for this. It was something completely unexpected, though. When we land, I'm going to take the side submersible to explore Challenger Deep, he said. His voice was eerily calm. 10,000 meters. Can you hear us, doctors? You're currently at 10,549 meters. You should be approaching the bottom momentarily. We hear you loud and clear. We've made it to the bottom. And turning on the lights and activating video cameras now. My voice was shaky but confident. The adrenaline had kicked in and I was beyond belief. There were purple and orange plants that littered the trenches floor. It looked like a swaying field of flowers. Tiny fish swam by the video camera. Fish that I had only ever seen in books. I looked over at my colleague. He was smiling as I watched a tear fall from his eye. We did it. 
My colleague's voice cracked. He sounded happy but off. We were 10,600 meters underwater. I figured that had to be it. That would make anybody sound off. Yeah, we did. I responded lightheartedly. I smiled, trying to lighten up the mood. We moved around the ocean floor for about five hours at documenting, taking photos, and making calculations. Everything looked remarkable. It looked like something straight out of a movie. We were only supposed to be down here for six to seven hours before ascending. About five and a half hours into our expedition, I saw my colleague putting on a rebreather. Why are you putting that on? You know we can't leave. There's way too much pressure. You know that. I tried to sound calm. Oh, I know. I'm not stepping out into the water, idiot. You think I don't know what 16,000 pounds of pressure per square inch will kill me? He was laughing. Well, why are you putting on a rebreather then? I said calmly, but slightly more irritated. I'm going into the side sub. I'm going to descend further. We didn't come all this way and descent toward the southern end for nothing. He wasn't laughing anymore, but his voice was still cheerful. That's for emergencies only. You know once it detaches that you can't come back onto the ship. You'll have to try and hook yourself back on. Who's the real idiot? My voice was now overflowing with irritation. He didn't say anything else. He geared up, opened the compartment that led to the side submersible, let it close behind him and started it up. The headlights were bright beside me. I watched him drift away and then start to descend. I called up to the base to tell them that my colleague had basically just gone rogue. The side submersible had a tracker on it as well. After a while with still no sign of him, I asked for his location. 11,017 meters. The side submersible can't handle all that pressure for long. I don't even know if anyone has even descended that far before. We're not getting a signal from him either, doctor. I remember thinking, why? Just why? Why did he have to do this? We've already had a remarkable journey. Of course, he always had to push the limits. I steered the main submersible over to where I last saw him. Once I had reached his point of descent, I looked down. It was black. It looked like a whole other trench. If I wouldn't have known any better, I would have thought it was a whole trench of its own. I would think it was definitely not part of the Mariana Trench. I wasn't going down there, and so I waited. And waited, and then waited some more. After about two more hours, we became absolutely frantic. I told the base that I wasn't going down, but I couldn't leave without him. I just couldn't. And that's when I saw headlights coming up from the darkness. I let out a sigh of relief. He was finally coming back, and he was okay. I thanked whatever higher power there was. Until the side submersible came up the whole way. Empty. Any relief I had been feeling quickly dissipated. I frantically called to base that the side submersible was empty. No answer. Communication was only meant to be for seven hours at most. We were close to ten and a half. Worried that I had lost all communication, 
I tried to steer the submersible back to the starting point. On my way there, I saw something float in front of me. As I drew closer, something made a wave big enough to push me back at least 40 feet. Looking around me, I couldn't see anything. Only about 3 feet in front of me. It was sandy and hard to see now. Whatever had made the wave stirred up the ocean floor. I was pushing my way back when I was hit with another underwater wave. This time, the submersible spun around like a high-speed record player. When I finally stopped spinning, I steadied myself to try to steer once more. This time, I couldn't even see a foot in front of me. It was like a tornado just swept across the trench's floor. And that's when I heard something smack against the side of the sub. It rattled me again, but it didn't knock me over. I looked, but couldn't see anything at all. And that's when I saw him. He smacked against the windshield so hard that my entire body involuntarily flinched. His body laid against the glass like a squashed fly. His eyes were fully popped out of his head. His eyes, nose, and ears were all profusely bleeding. His dangling eyes were completely bloodshot. His body was bloated everywhere. He looked like an overinflated balloon, ready to pop at any second. His suit was expelling blood from every opening. I let out a blood-curdling scream. I couldn't believe my eyes. Just as quickly as he was slapped in the windshield, he was washed away. I looked, but his body was gone. I waited for the ocean floor to settle a bit and made my way back to the starting point. I was able to reach base and have them start ascending me back to the surface. When they asked about my colleague, all I could do was cry. They reassured me everything would be fine, but I knew that it wasn't. I just saw my inflated dead friend smack against the submersible's window. I thought about his family. I thought about how no one would ever retrieve his body, and how his final resting place is at the deepest part of the ocean. I was shaking. I couldn't think of what could have happened. He would have never gone out there on his own free will. About 2,000 meters into ascending, the submersible was hit again. It stopped the ascension. It was pitch black and dead silent. I listened and heard scratching from the roof of the sob. I heard Bay say something, but it went in one ear and out the other. I was listening to something crawl out the way around the submersible. I crouched behind the control panel and peeked over slightly. Long, spindly legs and arms wrapped around the window. Its body contorted and stretched in ways a human could never. It's like the bones were able to bend. It had the body of a human, but its legs and arms were so absurdly long. The creature was so skinny. It looked like its ribs could poke through at any moment. It had four rows of razor-sharp teeth. I watched its bulging eyes dart around, inspecting the inside of the submersible. Once it didn't see anything, it let out a shriek that I've never heard in my entire life. It left my ears ringing. I thought that my eardrums had burst and expected blood, but luckily the ringing in pain faded quickly. And that's when I heard my colleague's voice. His laugh... I looked around and then peeked over the control panel again. The creature was still latched onto the windshield, 
but this time, its face was that of my dead colleague. I watched it mimic his voice perfectly. It was calling out for me. I just wanted to jump on and scream. I'm right here. Please come back. Please. I knew it might have had his face and his voice, but it sure as hell was not him. I covered my mouth as the creature recited conversations that we had had throughout the years. My held back tears and vomit as it rocked the submersible and screamed in frustration. Once I felt it flee, I slowly pulled myself back up into one of the control seats. I whispered into the microphone, Ascend as fast as you can. Now. My voice was quiet and frantic. Once I had reached the shore, I was inconsolable. I tried to explain what had happened, but I could barely talk. I was taken back to land and immediately sent to the hospital for any wounds or contusions that I may have had. Physically, I was fine. Emotionally, I was terrified. There was so much blood around the submersible that they didn't even bring it back. They scrapped it. They never went to look for my colleague, and they never used any of our documentation or findings. The research facility wanted it to be swept under the rug. The expedition was never documented either. They figured it would be a bad look if one of their employees had died on a private research expedition. I was then fired and moved back to the United States. The nightmares still stay with me. All of these years and the image of that creature and my dead friend are stuck in my brain like a parasite. The gruesome scene replaying over and over every night. I can still hear the creature's nails dragging along the metal. I can still hear it tapping on the windshield. I can still hear the ear-piercing shriek that thing let out. There's something down there, at the very, very bottom of the ocean, lying dormant at the very bottom of the world's deepest trench. I don't know what it is, but that's not the part that scares me the most. The fact that, no matter what it is, it can turn into anybody or anything. It can use your traumas against you, it can play your mind like a fiddle. You are nothing but prey. The fact that it was using my colleague's rebreather. The fact that it can also breathe air. That's what scares me the most. I'm a monster created by the government to hunt other monsters. Written by Mr. Mills of 45. I'm a monstrosity, the kind of horrendous figure children fear seeing in their closets and under their beds at night. People tell stories about creatures like me around the campfire, all sorts of myths and legends about snatching up unsuspecting victims and consuming the souls of the innocent. I'll tell you now, that couldn't be further from the truth. I am a cryptid, yes. But instead of being the thing that stalks you on the sidewalk at night when you're out walking alone, I'm the force that protects you, keeping you safe and making sure threats from the darker parts of the universe don't leak into this fragile planet. Of course, I'm not successful every time. Plenty of things slip through the cracks. Seeing as you humans all seem to share your tales of encounters with things that don't follow the natural law, 
but I can assure you, it would be far worse if I wasn't around. I wasn't born human. In fact, I really didn't have much of a birth to begin with. I only remember floating around in a tank of some sort for a small period of time, before being deployed out on the field my first time. When there's a threat the police, the FBI, or even the military can't understand or take care of by use of conventional means, that's where I come in. I deal with the things that your species cannot. That's my purpose, my drive, and what I was created to do. Over the decades, I've been sent to either kill or capture everything from sinister spirits to elongated humanoids. Whether they reside in national forests or in the local neighborhoods of their unfortunate victims. I take it that you're all curious as to my appearance, my abilities, and what it is that I use to sustain myself. Things along those lines. My height caps out at 8 feet tall. My skin is a midnight blue, with a slight shine at the edges of my joints. As far as my eyes go, they are simply a pair of yellow glowing light bulb shaped dots, which aid me in seeing in the dark. I possess claws about 4 inches long, razor sharp and strong enough to slice through most metal. They have a blue color similar to that of my skin to help me blend it with an array of environments better. Around July of 2011, I was deployed out into White's Mountain National Forest. There had been reports of some sort of creature snatching up campers and hikers in the night. There were 12 victims of the supposed cryptid. Only one had survived. He told his story to the police. They had taken his information down and then had secretly passed it on to us. When they had brought him into chat, a couple of agents had the man describe the cryptid in question. After which, they executed the man, not wanting him to get his story out there, and add to the panic already being ensued by all these sightings of otherworldly beings. The thing is, the guy had known too much. He had gotten multiple good looks at the thing before he had escaped. You should have seen the look on the director of operations face while the guy described the thing in near perfect detail. But his terror had caused him to stutter and lose track of his thoughts multiple times over. They had gotten all the information out of him that they could. I was going to be honest. His treatment by the agents was pretty humane and decent seeming, and by their standards anyway, all the way up to them blowing his brains out. Still, a much more merciful death compared to what I had seen in the past. It wasn't long after that that I and a team of agents had been deployed to go take the thing down, now that we knew where it was hiding and hunting, as well as what it looked like. I had no view of the scenery on the way there. I was transported inside a sealed up reinforced truck. It was more or less meant to hide my appearance from the public rather than keep me contained. I'm fed and taken care of well. I see no reason to betray the agency despite what you may think. They dropped me off at the edge of the forest. The place had been closed off in order to keep anyone from witnessing what was about to go down. Several men had geared up with night vision goggles, fully loaded rifles, and covered head-to-toe in body armor. They all walked along the trail deeper into the forest, 
marching carefully in a military formation as they looked around. I crawled up on the tree on all fours and moved from above, jumping from branch to branch to see if I could spot anything from the vantage point. I hissed and sniffed the air, trying to detect the creature's scent but to no avail. Usually this method had always worked, but this cryptid knew how to mask his scent well. It was one of the more intelligent beings that I had encountered over the decades. The agents below were getting tense during the hike. They too could sense something wrong. I could hear the intensity of their breathing beginning to increase, even underneath their mass. Where is this thing at? One complained. We've been out here for an hour now. I ignored him and led the way, crawling down from the trees above and back into the ground. I stood up in a bipedal fashion, letting myself tower over the agents as they looked up at me. Well, what about you, freak? The one closest to the front spoke up. You sense anything? I brushed his comment off. I was more than used to always getting ridiculed for my appearance. It was nothing new. I considered it worth it when they fed me so well. I got down on all fours and crawled around through some of the shrubbery off the path, doing everything in my power to use stealth and swiftness while being careful about my surroundings. It was only when I had gotten a couple hundred feet away from the rest of the squad that I had picked up the smell of blood, a lot of it. I went slightly from how hard the scent had hit me, especially with how powerful my nose is at picking that stuff up. I turned and dashed back over to the squad and informed them that I had picked up a scent, to which they became uneasy, their discomfort only becoming stronger. What is it? One asked. Blood. I replied simply, my voice echoing off the trees surrounding us. The squad followed behind me as I led them in the direction of the smell, keeping their guns trained on the area around them with every step they took. A few of them even complained about the smell once they were in range to detect it. Jesus, that's pungent, one cried. There was a dreadful silence that had accompanied our march. No rustling of trees, no dislodgement of rocks, and even no wind. When things were this quiet, it usually meant something was nearby. Something not human or animal. I kept a lookout through the tree line. My vision was excellent in the nighttime, which made it all the more unsettling when even I couldn't spot anything. But that same stench continued to flood my nostrils. Keep your heads up, man, said one of the squad members. Things could get ugly fast. And then I felt it. Something was moving below me. I could feel its vibrations bouncing off the bottom of my feet. The creature was underground and it was pressing forward in a slithering-like motion. It felt like there were multiple of them, not just one. I turned around to signal to the squad something was coming. But before they could comprehend what I was attempting to tell them... A pair of long, yellow-colored tentacles burst up from the soil, grabbing two of the agents and wrapping around them. Fire! A few squad members shouted simultaneously, attempting to bring the thing down. The forest was now filled with the sounds of gunfire and agonizing screams of terror. The men in the clutches of the tentacles kicked and fought for their lives, but it was useless. I lunged at the pair of tentacles and slashed at one of them with my claws 
trying to cut them off in order to save the man that had been grabbed. A yellow pus spilled out from the disgusting limb each time that I swiped at it, causing the creature to screech inhumanely. Once I had taken out the first tentacle, the agent who had been grabbed was dropped to the ground in a lifeless fashion. He had died from suffocation, his eyes bulging out of his skull while his mouth was ajar from his howls of pain. Those of us who remained turned our attention to the second tentacle, but this time, the creature had changed up its strategy. Using the squad member in its grasp as a human battering ram to swat away the other agents, hitting them away like it was nothing more than a game of baseball. They were all knocked on their backs, sent into trees and thrashed around, all of them lying on the ground coughing and choking as they groaned from the bruises. I attacked the tentacle as best as I could, avoiding two swings and being mere inches away from getting clobbered by a third. I slashed at the bottom of the limb. The pus leaked out into the soil and seeped underground. The agent in this tentacle's grasp had fared even worse than the first. Not only had he been brutally asphyxiated, but his neck was horribly disfigured and broken from all the blows that he had been used to carry out. The other squad members attempted to get to their feet and raise their guns. Several more tentacles had crashed upwards through the ground and grabbed them. This creature was far from done with us. A couple of the agents fired their guns in an unhinged and desperate manner as a futile effort to escape the cryptid's grasp. When I attempted to get down on all fours and crawl towards the men to help, I too was grabbed by both my legs, being pulled back before also having my arms restricted. I couldn't move or do anything. I tried to retract my claws to slice up the tentacles, holding me back, but it was no use. I was completely restrained. A deep, booming voice then evaded its way into my eardrums. It sounded like it was coming from all directions at once, as if it were above ground instead of below. You shall watch, it demanded, making its bone-chilling intentions clear. All of the agents who had been grabbed were not just simply having their airflow restricted this time. They were being torn apart. Their screams. God, their screams. It wasn't like anything I had ever heard before, even from other strange creatures. Right in front of my eyes, they were pulled apart like cotton candy. Blood stained the trees, dirt, and bushes. The smell of copper was overwhelming me as they were dismembered, only adding to what had been there before. Bones cracked, joints snapped, and multiple screams were suddenly cut short as they died. Once again, leaving us in the eerie silence of the forest. When the deeply unsettling display of the creature's power and relentlessness had ended, it had tightened its grip around me, making sure to keep me in place as I looked at the sights of all the deceased agents. Not a single one had survived. It was just me. I was all alone now with this beast. These humans. That same commanding voice from earlier said, They are nothing. A mere inconvenience to you and I. They will throw you out, treat you like you are of no value, and yet you help them like the fool you are. Why is that? You have all this power, knowledge of the things that they do not. You could slit their throats and snap their bones in an instant, but you allow them to order you around as if you are a puppet, 
when really, they should be yours. Let me go. I replied slowly. I beg of you to join me. Why do you think I didn't kill you? I wanted you to see that you do not belong to them. A being like you was meant to roam free, to be feared. I want them to bow to us, for them to give up their freedom as a desperate attempt to keep us from slaughtering them and everything they hold dear. I protect them, I serve them, they feed me, I growled, trying to sound confident in my response. What? Scraps? That sustenance is only there to keep you from getting a taste of their flesh so you don't turn on them. They will never truly care about you. You are the material of a king, but continue to play the role of a pawn. You stand in a room surrounded by them, being docile for their sake. Instead of tearing the skin off their bones and demonstrating you are the superior being. I jerked around and shaked as much as I could to escape the creature's grasp before an idea popped into my head. I was out of options and in a really bad spot. Fighting right now will only end in my death and the death of many others. I needed to approach this with caution and intelligence. Fine, I will join you. I have grown tired of being their pet. I want to be far more. I announced in the most sincere tone that I could muster. The cryptid went silent, attempting to contemplate my statement and decide if I was telling the truth. Why the sudden change of heart? It asked suspiciously. I have looked back on my existence. I have seen what they truly want from me now that I rethink everything they have said and done to me. I am nothing but an experiment to them. I mean to carry out the things those cowards can't hope to. The creature began to laugh, clearly amused by my passionate lie. I couldn't tell whether he was buying it or not. I could feel myself tensing with every passing second. He began to speak again, this time much less forcefully. We belong out here, not in those prisons. No matter how much they pass it off as sanctuary, they're nothing but torture chambers to keep us and our true power locked up. They know what we can do. Why do you think those in power try to hide our existence from the rest? They fear the damage that we can cause. Not only to their frail skeletons, but to their minds. They want to keep us reserved to their nightmares, their dark tales and their fantasies in order to feel safe. To have a sense of control. A level of control they will never have in their short, mortal lives. And then, between these sets of tentacles, a large bulge began to form in the dirt. He was now coming out of the ground. The soil, stones, and bushes had been forced out of their spots by the huge mass digging its way up to the surface. Once the massive figure had emerged from below, and all the dirt had fallen off of it, it revealed its hideous and demonic appearance. He made even the most horrendous of entities seem beautiful by comparison. It was the body of the creature. I could make out the shape of its remaining tentacles that were connected to these sides of its torso. If that's what you could even call it anyway. His bizarre looking head was the shape of a cylinder. His body itself only stood about 8 feet tall while his tentacles seemed to reach a freakishly long 20 feet in front of him. The being possessed no sort of eyes. Not ones that I could distinguish or see. 
but his mouth was a rectangular shade. Very thin, but filled to the brim with dull, square-shaped teeth, most of which were chipped and damaged. His legs were laughably small compared to the rest of him, especially his other limbs. His body was a urine-like yellow color, like his tentacles. The ones that he had used to restrain me soon loosened their grip and freed me. We both stood our ground apart from each other for a moment, waiting for the other to make any sudden movements or try anything funny. This is your chance. He began under the monologue. Go be free. Feast on whatever it is you desire. You are no longer under the command, nor do you have to bend to their will. Now you can make them bend to yours. Their abilities are nothing in comparison to ours. They invent technology and weapons to assist them, but it's no use. Everything they create will always be useless in their battle against us. I stood up on two legs, locking eyes with the creature. Do you even have a name? He asked, and to which I gave no response and slowly walked over to him, little by little, keeping my true intentions hidden. He chuckled, not moving or standing back in the slightest. He displayed no signs of fear for me. Don't you want to be what you truly are? To explore what makes you better than them? You have to show them that you are a force to be reckoned with, not some glorified attack dog. He continued on. I edged myself closer, giving him a convincing grin to a moat at his proposals, doing everything I could to make it seem like I was picking up what he was putting down. Just when I was close enough to attack, he returned my smile with an even more sinister smirk of his own allowing all of his broken and disfigured teeth to show themselves. Disgusting is a gross understatement for his appearance. I lunged forward and wrapped myself around his head, sinking my claws and teeth into his scaly, rubbery skin. That same runny yellow pus oozed out from his wounds as I clawed and bit him. His screams were powerful enough to shake the foundation of a skyscraper. He thrashed his body and used his tentacles to grab me, in a final desperate attempt at survival, as his life force drained itself from him. A tentacle wrapped around my torso and I was thrown hard enough to go smashing right through the trunk of an oak tree, doing multiple somersaults backwards as I tumbled along the ground. I quickly got back up on all fours, readying myself for an attack that never came. The cryptid screams were now beginning to fade. He dropped to his knees as his tentacles continued to throw themselves wildly around the area, nearly clipping me in the process. I latched onto one of the trees and ran up to the top, watching his dramatic death come to an end. Even though he had no eyes, he spent his last few seconds of life glaring at me with a damning expression, telling me that I would soon meet him in hell and pay for what I had done. His final movements were weak, insignificant and inconsequential. The trees around me shook as he fell back and took his seemingly final breath. I gave myself a few moments to decide if it was safe, and then cautiously crawled my way back down to the ground, listening for any sign of his breathing or being alive. I poked at one of his connected tentacles. There was no movement or any sort of reaction, so I then made my way over to his body to inspect it. Only when I saw it again did it occur to me how much damage I had actually done, 
The pierced wounds from my claws and teeth had torn away most of the flesh from around the top of his head. Some of the tissue near his mouth had been peeled off, as well as his alien-looking brain being exposed at the top of his head. I was now out here stranded alone with no sorts of backup. All the agents were dead and communication systems were destroyed. I didn't know how to get back to the base scene as I had been prevented from glimpsing at my surroundings during the trip. A feeling of hunger began to overcome me. It had been quite a bit since I had last fed. I saw no other choice and came to the conclusion of what needed to be done. I knelt down and began to feed on the corpse of the monster, making quick work of his skin and picking off everything I could from his bones. In the middle of feasting, I had figured I should speed up. I didn't want anyone who would have potentially been in the forest to come check out all the commotion and see me. Despite the fact we the agency ordered the government to close the place up prior to this disaster of a mission. I had finished up my meal and stood on two legs, looking around for any signs of life, anyone or anything that could have been watching me. I had figured the agency would come and send more men once they had realized we hadn't returned on the scheduled time, but in the back of my mind, I didn't want that to be the case. The things that entity said were hard to get out of my thoughts. I looked out into the forest, seeing all sorts of wildlife and most importantly freedom, something I had never experienced before. If that thing had been right about something, it was that I should embrace what I am. I still didn't hate humanity, but rather I wanted to be able to make more of my own choices and decisions, to eat whatever I wanted, to roam wherever I please, not having to carry the burden of working for someone else. I contemplated for I'm not sure how long. I know they would come looking for me when they found out. That much was obvious. So if I was going to get out of here... I needed to do it now and be quick about it. I couldn't ever come back. They would more than likely kill me if I did. Or try to anyway. I turned around, giving one last glance to all the death and destruction behind me, before getting down on all fours and running off into the forest. I know what I truly am. I am a creature of the night, the thing your children fear to see under their beds. The monstrosity you feel watching you from behind you, as you walk alone at the late hours of the night. Heed this warning. Do not come looking for me. Do not try to capture, kill, or disturb me. I promise it will not end well for you. Leave me be. I am what I am. Nothing and no one can change that now. An ancient robot works on our family farm. We don't know where he came from. Written by Darkly Gathers When one pictures a robot, and forgive me here if I've made an assumption, but I feel that one typically pictures something futuristic-like. Flashing lights, a shining chrome, beep-boop-bop, laser beams and an antenna and all that. Our boys and nothing like that at all. He's been on the farm for as long as I can remember. As long as my pa can remember. And my grandpa never told my pa where the robot came from. If he ever even knew himself. All the old man said on the matter was that 
he had promised to keep the robot hidden and made us all promise to do the same. Man, we've kept our promise. Until very recently, our family were the only ones to know about Avatomat. That's his name, Avatomat. That's what we called him. I'm looking at him right now. I'm watching him through the mist of the morning, playing a game with my little sister and my little brother. He's a tall boy, gotta be more than six and a half feet tall by my reckoning. Now, it's tough to describe a man made of metal as ancient, but there's really no other word for him. He's been carrying on without fault or fail for decades now, but a Vatomat always looks like he's on the edge of total collapse. I had never seen a more rusted piece of machinery in all my days. And as best as my paw tries, he can only ever scrub off the surface skies. The rust goes deep. I shield my eyes from the encroaching drizzle, but a Vatomat don't mind it. My siblings certainly don't. He's all beams and springs and gears. You can see them turning as he moves from place to place, whistling and rattling as he does so. We ain't got no idea how Vatomat's powered, and he won't tell us. We've long since given up asking. But back in the early days, he had only put a segmented, screw-like finger to his mouth and tell my pa that it's a secret. Occasionally, a cloud of steam will burst from the pipes in his waist or his shoulders, but it ain't regular. I watch as he picks up my brother, Fidir, to a squeal of laughter and spins him around in a circle. Me next, shouts Yulia, my sister, jumping up and down through the fog. Me next. My pod fitted a Vatel mat with a pair of heavy brown leather gloves a few weeks ago. I'm not sure why he didn't do it earlier, to be frank, given the rust on his fingers. A Vatel mat loves them, but man, if it sure doesn't make him look goofy. I smile good-naturedly as I catch a flash of them through the early gray mist. He's a great worker, is a Vatel mat. Loves to till, never tires of plowing. He's great at fixing, too. Loves to work on tractors in the combine. Though I swear every time he has his hands on them, they seem to work a little different. Not worse mind, just differently. You get used to it. He spots me through the haze. Those cracked, traffic-like-ass circles of eyes of his flash a pleasant aqua green as he sets my sister down onto the damp field of grass. Me raises a hand to wave. Gears cranking and clattering as he does so. Good day, Miss Sophia. Care for any assistance with the chickens this morning? I grimace at him. I ain't too keen on being referred to as Miss. I've been a tomboy at heart since I was two, and he won't know. Sophia, as always, is fine, Ovatomat. I reply, and thank you for the offer, but I'm all good for now. Avatomat nods with a clank and returns to his game with Fidir and Yulia. Avatomat likes the fields the best. He'll work with the animals on occasion and when asked, but some of them are mighty frightened of him. The animals, I mean. And he'll only ever help collect eggs, move the birds around, shear the sheep, that kind of thing. He won't help with the slaughter when the time calls for it. 
I am unable to bring harm to sentient creatures. He'll say with an apology. And there's no room for compromise on this. Feeder once fell right off the back of a moving tractor, fooling around as he was, dislocated his shoulder on impact with the ground. He begged Vatomat to crack it back into place, to ease him of his suffering. And I don't doubt that the robots could have done it, if he had been so inclined. But the answer to every whimpering plea was the same. I am sorry, Master Feeder. I am unable to bring harm to sentient creatures. So instead, he picked him right up and marched him the whole three miles back to the house, so Pa could take the boy back to the doctor. He's a curious fellow, especially considering those three miles didn't seem at all that comfortable for poor Feeder, to say the least. Our farm comprises the fields near the cliffside. On warm summer days, you can stand by the edge and look down at the waters, blue and frothing against the rocks below. You can watch the birds circle in the sky in the distance over the sea. The view is a little grayer at the present time. In the opposite direction, the fields stretch on and border the road, though it's more of a rough track really, and this leads down to the nearest town. It's from this direction now that I hear a call of greeting, and I swivel to see a silhouette approach through the mist. I'm about to shout back to my siblings, tell them to get a Vatomat hidden away, but I realize bitterly that there ain't no point this time. It's Max. As I mentioned earlier, until recently, around a week ago, our family were the only ones who knew about Avatomat's existence, but he was noticed by another, a neighborhood boy by the name of Max. How he even saw the robots in the first place, I ain't sure, though if I was to guess, I should think the pervert was probably spying on me. Without wanting to sound arrogant, I just don't have any idea what else he could possibly be doing snooping around as he was. And he's made his interest in me pretty clear, especially since this discovery. It's never been laid out in any kind of straight terms, but the implication of Max's knowledge is tragically obvious. He holds us under the threat of blackmail, of snitching, of spilling the secrets of Vatomat's presence here. Max is terrified of my father, and avoids him where he can. But he ain't the slightest bit scared of a Vatomat. He well knows about the robot's protocol. The boy's holding something now in his hand. A rock, I think. And he brings back his arm and hurls it hard through the air. I watch the rock fly over and hit a Vatomat in the side of the head, with a hard crack. Fedor and Yulia cry out in distress. Leave him alone, Max, you bully. I say to him, squaring my shoulders. Max only laughs, stepping close to me. He's a robot, Sophia. He don't give a shit. Do you, robot? He calls. Avatomat does not reply. Only watches through the drizzle with those lamplight, watery green eyes. Max laughs again. He's a little metal baby is all. Don't speak like that in front of the kids, Max. I reply coldly. What are you doing here? Well, can I come to see my favorite girl in the morning? He replies, leaning his face close to mine. 
I pull back and irritation flashes across his face. If only the boy would stand a little straighter, smile with a little less of that horrible sneer in his lips. He wouldn't look half bad, to be sure. But he don't. He never has and he never will. I would wager. And it's too late for that anyway. He's a rotten boy, rotten to the core. And I want nothing to do with him. I'm not sure how keen Max truly is to tell the town about the robot. If he were to do so, he would lose his bargaining chip and any power that he has over me. But I would have put it past him to tell regardless out of sheer spite. And so we play this nasty game, this back and forth. I swallow my pride and give the boy a reluctant kiss on the cheek. He smirks renewed. That's better, he grins. Now come on, go and get dressed. I'm taking you into town today. Max, I can't. You know I can't. I got work to do. It's a Saturday, he replies. What the heck are you talking about? Max, there's always work to do. This is a farm. I can't come out with you. I'm busy. The irritation returns to his face. You got a robot to do your work for you, don't you? He shoots a glance behind me at Avatomat. What's the matter? Is he broken or something? Since when were you so, Tormos? Stop thinking slow and come out with me. Max. He reaches forward and grabs my arm, roughly pulling me close to him. My siblings behind is shot at him in anguish. I can hear their footsteps approaching over the wet grass. It's alright, guys. I call back to them. Leave it be. You're a nasty bully, Yulia shouts at him, and I see Max's eyes leave mine and dart over my shoulder. And you're a pretty little thing, he says with a leer in his voice. I should think you'll grow up to look like your sister here one day, maybe even prettier. Yulia's only ten, six years younger than I. I don't think Max would go near her. He's too afraid of my father. But I really don't know. And that's what's scary. I just don't know. Leave her alone, Max, alright? I'm coming with you. I'll come into town. I muttered through clenched teeth, and he releases me. That's better, he says. Now come on, the car is waiting. He shoots my sister a quick and obvious wink, and then turns and strolls back through the mist and over the fields. I hate him. I turn to look at my siblings. They're holding tight to Vatelmat's legs. My eyes meet the robots. They flash a bright green through the haze. The day in town is one rife with forest intimacy. It makes my skin crawl, but I give a little ground and keep implicated. I let him put his hands around me. I let him kiss my cheek. But eventually the day, as long as it is, comes to an end. At the break of the evening, he drops me off at the end of the road, and it's clear that he's wanting something more. But I can't. I just can't. And so I push him away. He flushes. He had been building up to this all day, and I had just gone and rejected him like it was nothing. His mouth twists, and I intercept preemptively. Max, I say as diplomatically as I can, let's just... 
Look, you gotta give me a real chance to get to know you. It's too soon. It's been a week, Sophia. How much longer are you gonna... Max. I grit my teeth and put my hand on his arm. Take it slow. I'll see you soon, okay? But now I gotta get back. He chews his tongue. You haven't forgotten about tonight. I want you all pretty for me, too. None of these farm girl overalls. I take a step back. Tonight. Come on, Sophia. Tonight's the night your paws away, remember? That's what you said. He had business in town. I was gonna bring over the alcohol and that picnic that I planned. I breathe. My pa had thankfully cancelled his night away quite recently. I won't be seeing Max tonight. Sorry, Max, it's been cancelled. He's gonna be home after all, sorry. Another time. Max clenches his fist. But I had everything prepared. I got the food all made. Sorry, another time. I forced myself to wave and then quickly turn to leave, striding over the field and along the fastest route back to the house. I don't turn back, but after a while, I hear the car starting and driving steadily away. This ain't sustainable. I'm gonna have to come up with a proper plan and dealing with Max. This can't go on. This guy's gone from a nuisance to someone who really frightens me. He's warped in the head. I spend the evening, before it gets too dark, finishing up the work with Avatomat. He's strong. He can lift an entire bale of hay by himself. And he never seems to get tired. I really don't know what we would do without him. I wonder idly, as I often do, what his purpose is. His true purpose. It can't be for carrying bales of hay around all day. Where did he come from? My train of wonderings is derailed when I push back into the farmhouse, calling for Pa, but finding only Yulia sat drawing at the kitchen table. He had to go out, Sophia, she says, looking up at me, worry right across her face. Feeder is hurt. I freeze. What do you mean, Yulia? How hurt? Is he okay? What happened? He don't remember. He says one minute he was running by the corn. Next minute he was on the ground, with blood streaming down his face, and a headache like he'd never had before. Anger rushes through me, red hot. Max. Is he sure, Yulia? He's sure he didn't see what happened. Yulia shakes her head. Reckons he must have tripped and banged his head. I close my eyes in for a moment and force myself to steady my nerves, to cool my rage. Feeder ain't never fallen and banged his head in his whole life. Yulia continues. So Pa's gone and rushed him to the doctor's. Should be back later tonight. He's open at least. There's no way this is a coincidence. Max is a dangerous then. This confirms it. He's a dangerous lunatic. A knock on the door sends goosebumps shooting out up my arms. I turn to look at it in taut silence. We all do. The atmosphere changes at once. And the knock comes again. Ain't nobody gonna let me in. Comes Max's voice from beyond the door. I, of course Max. I reply, thinking over my options. 
but it's too late. I've let him know that I'm here, and he pushes through into the room uninvited. Oh my my, you're still in your farm clothes. Didn't I tell you to get dressed? Max, how did you know that? I saw your pa drive past in his truck. Figured he has changed his mind about that outing. Max's grin is cold and humorless, and he sends a shiver down my spine. Why don't you go on upstairs and change up? I have plenty of company while I wait. The thought of leaving Max and Yulia alone, even with the presence of a battle mat, and even for only a few minutes, the notion sends by Pauls are racing with anxiety. What's wrong with what I'm wearing right now? You got a problem with my outfit. You look like a farm boy, Sophia. It ain't appropriate. I stand defiant. I have to. The grass might still be damp from this morning. I ain't getting any fine dress of mine ruined. Not for you, not for nobody. Now stop being a fussy and take me out for that starlit picnic, okay? There's a tense pause. Alright, sure. He grumbles, relenting. And I take his arm. I shoot a pleading look at a battle mat as I turn to close the door behind me. Please take care of Yulia, it says in its meaning. A battle mat nods in reply with a couple of soft clicks, and the door draws closed. Max is breathing heavy as he leads us through the fields. Me stumbled a little bit too. Max, I ask, have you been drinking already? How the hell did you drive here? Just a little, he replies, reaching into his bag and pulling out a small bottle of vodka, half empty. He shakes it in his hand and the remaining liquid sloshes around. But you ain't gonna get grass in me, are you? He laughs and plants a wet kiss on the side of my mouth. I shiver in disgust. He takes my hand in his as we walk through the night, the breeze gentle. We come to a stop in a scenic knoll not far from the cliffside. Now, if this ain't one of the best views this side of the country, he murmurs. The clouds have cleared somewhat, and the stars in the moon shine bright, reflecting pretty in the slow rolls of the deep, dark blue of the sea beyond. Sure is, I reply quietly, the breeze picking up into a slight wind, rustling my hair about my face. He sits down on the grass, opening his bag, pulling out a little basket of parashki and bread buns with meat fillings. He takes one and starts munching, drawing out after them a new bottle of vodka, this one unopened. Here, he says, relax, have a drink. I sit with him, but I decline the alcohol. I'd better not, Max. Vodka ain't my drink anyhow. There's another pause. Vodka ain't your drink, he replies coolly. I swallow nervously. Yeah, that's right. And you didn't think to mention this to me at any point. Well, I... it just never really came up, I guess. A vein bulges in the side of his neck. He licks his upper teeth and takes another swig from the bottle, before holding the new one out to me. Not even one sip. You won't take one damn sip of vodka after knowing the trouble I went through to get it for you. For us. I gently push the bottle away. I can't stand it, Max. I'm sorry. 
Max flushes at once and hurls the empty bottle at a rock at the edge of the cliff, where it shatters. He swears loudly and makes me jump. He angrily grabs his bag, muttering to himself as he roots through it. Heart pounding, I reach out to him, trying to placate him, and he pulls something from his bag. It looks like a length of rope. Before I can really process, however, he's on me, heavier than he looks and holding me down, quick as a flash wrapping that rope around my arms, muttering and seething, stinging vodka dripping from his lips and down to my face. Max, stop. What the heck has gotten into you? Stop for Christ's sakes. Max. But he does not. My panic rises desperately and feverishly. I've always considered myself strong. Someone who can handle themselves in a fight. But surprised like this. Suckered without a chance to fight back. I've lost already. I don't have a hope in hell. I scream and spit up into his face. He ignores me, grunting as he pushes and pulls me around, keeping me down with his legs, wrapping the rope tighter and tighter. He brings me up closer to him so as to tie a knot in the back, and I take the opportunity to bite hard into his ear. He cries out in pain and tears himself away, losing a piece of ear in a shower of blood in the process. He smacks me about the face and jumps behind me, tying the knot as I thrash helplessly kicking as hard as I can but tiring sooner than I had expected and after a beat he binds together my legs. My screams give way to frustrated sobs. Max, please stop. You just go on and let me go. Let me the heck go. What's wrong with you? I give you every chance, you stupid girl. He hisses, cracking open the new bottle and taking another mouthful. He stumbles past me and reaches down to grab the remaining half of his food, biting into the dough and chewing as he regards me with drunken, angry eyes. As he talks, he sprays me with spittle, with bits of flake and beads of vodka. I didn't want to do this. I really didn't. But otherwise, you would have me waiting and waiting with no end in sight. Max, you're drunk. Come on, please, let me go. He crouches down and puts a hand on my cheek, stroking it. His hand is cold and sticky, and I cringe away from his touch. He takes another careless swig, eyes dark and stands up. He begins with the fumbling motions of the intoxicated to unbutton his pants. I scream, I struggle, and a voice cuts through the night from a little ways behind. Miss Sophia, would you care for any assistance? I force my body round, twisting my neck to see. Max turns likewise. Terror passes momentarily across his face, and then vanishes at once, replaced with a laugh. Your robot boyfriend has followed you out here, Sophia. He snorts, doubling over with that cruel laughter of his. The robot stands tall, little more than a silhouette. The light of the stars glinting flitterly off of his shinier gears. His eyes brighten aqua green. The long grass rustles in the rising wind above his feet. He cocks his head. Vattlemat, help. Please restrain him. I am sorry, Miss Sophia. Vattlemat replies with a clank and a little cloud of steam. 
I am unable to bring harm to sentient creatures. You ain't gonna do shit. Max slurs. Stepping boldly up to the robot and shoving him hard in the chest. A Vatalmat takes a step back. Untie me, Vatalmat. Get me out of these robes. I call, squirming and sweating in panic. But as a Vatalmat makes to move towards me, Max staggers back a few steps, grabs a handful of broken glass, and stuffs it into my mouth. The sharp edges cut the inside of my lip, and I imagine he cuts himself too in the process, but he doesn't seem to care. Before I have a chance to spit it out, he's gagged me with a length of torn fabric, tying it around my head to keep it in place. The alcohol residue stinks like fire in the cuts the glass makes in my cheeks. Max rises to a stand and points a shaking finger at a battle mat. Stay right there, robot. Stay right the heck there. He takes another swig of vodka. You can't harm a sentient creature, is that right? Well, you try and untie these robes and you'll cause Miss Sophia a great deal of squirming and shifting. And that glass is going to do a world of harm to her little mouth. So you keep your distance, alright? Vatalmat stops with a clank and a hiss. He looks from me to Max and then down to the ground, and then back to Max. He cocks his head, and his eyes flash. A gear in his chest turns, but the robot does not move. In fact, you know what? Max shouts, grabbing the last of his food, taking a bite, sipping on another mouthful of vodka to wash it down. You can turn your metal ass around and go back to the house and forget all about this robot. Or I'm gonna hurt Sophia. I'm gonna hurt her great. Max chokes suddenly and violently. He drops the bottle to the ground and doubles over gagging. His throat convulses in the moonlight as he tries and fails to take in another breath. He tries to cough it up. He tries to force out a laugh to indicate drunkly that he is still in control. But the laughter does not come. He starts shaking his head. He staggers. He stumbles and tries to cough. Again and again. It's a terrible, terrible noise. Violent and sick. He falls to the ground beside me. Tries to untie my ropes in shaking hands, but he cannot do it. He cannot move fast enough. He cannot make up his mind on the best course of action. And the clock is ticking. I can only watch wide-eyed. Max rises up and claws at his neck. His fingernails cut the flesh and he falls to the ground a second time, crawling through the grass, grabbing a hold of Vatomat's leg, pleading, begging, spluttering and choking as he scratches at the metal with one hand, and desperately kneads his throat with the other. Vatomat looks down at him dispassionately. Uh, help! Max chokes, a wordless plea. His eyes begin to roll back up into his head. The wind blows through the grass. You seem to be in need of the Heimlich Maneuver, Master Max, says a battlemat, as two shimmering silver leaves from a faraway tree blow past his face. Unfortunately, the force of such a maneuver delivered by myself would likely result in the breaking of ribs. A battlemat's eyes flash a brighter and deeper green, Shining gems in the darkness. And I am unable to bring harm to sentient creatures. 
Max scream catches somewhere between his lung and his throat. His chest contracts repulsively, and he scrambles drunkenly to his feet. Stumbling, his legs carry him one direction. His torso tries to take him another. His oxygen-starved brain has lost control. The boy's eyes go white, and he falls. Tripping over his own feet, he collapses, dropping like a stone, and often over the edge of the cliff. And just like that, he is gone. Vatamat left after that to go and get help. Yulia came back with him and they set me free. The cuts on my inner cheeks sting and will for a while, but they ain't permanent, the doctor said. My pod rushed me there as soon as he had returned with Feeder, the poor man. Two trips in one night. Feeder likewise will be fine, by the way. No permanent harm done. Just some stitches needed. It's a battle, Matt, that I'm most worried about now. Everything ain't all wrapped up in a nice little bow. A boy has gone missing. The questions have begun sprouting across town. The authorities have been involved. There's trouble brewing. My pa was beyond himself with rage when he found out what Max had been doing with me. It took a time to calm him down. He said that I should have gone to him the second the boys started causing trouble, and he would have beat the boy black and blue. I don't know, maybe I should have done it. I was just trying to protect my family. And going forward, the evidence is stacked in my favor. It's a gamble, but we could pretty much tell the truth. That Max was a scoundrel who attacked me and drunkenly fell to his death. But we would have to find someplace secure to hide a Vatamat away, before any of their investigating if we do. I've caught sight of the robot through my bedroom window on more than one occasion since that night, far out and away, a little figure in the distance, standing on the cliffside where Max fell to the rocks and the water below, staring silently out to sea. Whatever he's thinking, if he's even thinking at all, is impossible to say. But regardless, for now at the least, we are safe. For now. There's a man made of wood who lives in the forest. He's keeping me from something. Written by Darkly Gathers. I know he is there. The man who lives in the forest. I'm yet to see him directly, but I feel this presence nonetheless. He flows as a shifting shadow between the boughs and branches of the trees. A dancer and the darkness unheard above the creaks and whispers of the winds of the night. He watches me through the leaves and the pines, waiting for his moment to strike. I know it. I'm sure of it. He scares me, but I will not let that stop me. That's what he wants. He wants to stop me from reaching it. From reaching the deer. I'm looking for it now. I'm on its trail. The broken branches and twigs crunch and crack beneath my feet. I'm going too fast, really. It's dangerous to move at such a speed in conditions such as these. With little but the glimmer of the stars through the clouds and the leaf tops above to guide my way. But I can't afford to lose the object of my quest. 
the deer is otherworldly. I may be only a kid, but I'm not stupid enough to miss such pure wonder and beauty when I see it. My first sighting of the animal was about a month ago, from the heights of my bedroom window. I caught the briefest of glimpses through the glass of the creature staring back at me from the edge of the forest, and then it turned and scampered away. It has never returned to a place so close to my garden since, and each night that I go out in its pursuit, I find that I have to push deeper and deeper into the woods before I see it again. Every time I feel the same, the beating of my heart as I race through the undergrowth, the rush of blood and wind in my ears, the growling panic that this will be the night that I fail to see it, that the sequence will come to an end, that I have missed a predestined but unspecified period of allotted time, that the deer has grown tired of our little game and has left me alone. I take more or less the same route every night. My parents don't care. They're too busy fighting to even notice my absence. I hasten as always through the forest, and to date, the deer has always appeared on the edge of the forest's familiarity. Just as I realize that I have entered into a new and mysterious cluster of trees, there it is, shining through the gloom. And to my desperate relief, tonight, it would seem, is no different. There stands the deer, its body a pale shimmer through the shadows of the night. I stagger to a stop, my chest rising and falling, doing my best to keep my breathing as quiet as I can. Goosebumps shiver up and across my skin as the deer's wide and wary eyes stare back into mine. They shine in pale blue and ripple through soft shades of glowing green and with flickers of watery gold. Still as stone, poised and waiting, it watches me, the soft white of its thin fur catching and reflecting the silver of the stars above. Three antlers adorn its head, one on either side, and one towards the back of its head like a crest all in pale, bone-like white. I feel in its gaze, as always, the strongest of sensations that it wants me to follow, that it is leading me somewhere, somewhere unearthly and important and mystical beyond comprehension. I take a slow step. My foot crunches softly into the roots and grass beneath. I take another the deer, I swear, grows accustomed to me. Unless it is my imagination, I feel as if I am able to draw closer and closer with every passing night. I try for a third, but the deer bolts. It turns with rapidity and darts at once off and away into the darkness of the forest. And I do as I always do. I follow. With the wind in my hair and the ferns about my feet, I follow. This is always the moment when I become aware of the man in the woods. I sense his presence around me, following. It is urgent and frightening. He is after me, and not in the same manner that I am after the deer. I know this. Stay back, 
I wished to call out to him, but I dare not. Not for fear of disturbing the deer. I tear through the murk and shadowed green of the forest, as the shadow of the deer grows dimmer and dimmer. Wait, I whisper, please. But the deer does no such thing. It bounds through the undergrowth, becoming harder and harder to see. Where does it go? I think to myself, where will it lead me? But as fate decides, tonight is not the night that I am set to find out. The deer has disappeared now. I stumble after a little while longer following its trail, but it is fruitless. I cannot see. I do not know which way it fled. And so I buckle, breathing heavily, panting and struggling. The branches shake in the breeze, a breeze much colder now than it was a mere minutes ago, and the eyes of the man in the forest fall heavily upon me, unseen in the dark. There is nothing to do now but to steal my resolve, to turn and to retreat back the way that I came. It becomes harder to do each time, as I begin my journey from a new location each night, a location slightly deeper into the thrall of my mysticism of the midnight woods. The shadowed shape of a figure to my left bids me hastily turn, teeth grit, but I see nothing but the shivering leaves of a bush that has grown over the corpse of a fallen tree. I push aside a branch, retracing my steps, back through the forest. The man will not hurt me. I will not let him. The man will not hurt me. I keep this mantra and nothing else in the forefront of my mind the entire walk back. It takes much longer this way. It is as if the forest itself has stretched. Whatever wordless magic it was that allowed me to keep pace with the deer has vanished along with it and I am left to fumble my way back to the edge of the woods alone. I fear becoming lost out here, I do, and I fear the man in the shadows. But it is worth it. It is all worth it for the chance to see and to follow the deer. He shouldn't try and hurt me now. The man. Not now that I'm on the way back. I get the sense that he's just seeing me out. This is how I've rationalized my decisions, at least. I don't actually know what he wants, or who he is. Not really. So I keep coming back. Night after night I return, each with growing fear that I will miss the deer, that it will have abandoned me. But I always see it. And I swear, I swear that I grow closer with every one of my pursuits. But still, it evades me. As a dissipating dream in the embers of the morning, so it goes. It's all I can think about these days, the deer and where it leads. I don't know if my parents are still fighting. I imagine they are, but I don't care. And ever the man follows, he too draws closer. I have long since given up trying to protect my arms and legs. There is little point now. They are coated in scrapes and scratches and scars from the forest. Lines and marks in white and red that carry up and across my neck and my shoulders. All trivial. 
all more than worth it for another chance at following the deer to the end of its path. Where does it go? Where does the deer lead? With growing desperation, I follow, pleading silently with the deer to slow, for the obstacles of the forest to relent just a little. But they never do. They never do. No matter. My determination will see me through. Even through the drive of the rain, and kicking up the muddied puddles, thick comes the green dank filth and spray of the forest water. Still yet to stream but rippling and frothing with hungry patience under the fall. Every dusk on evening, now I push so far, so deep into the forest, getting out there to see the object that occupies my thoughts, and then trudging reluctantly back. It takes up most of the night. My dreams, when I have them, are broken and thick, but it is worth it. It is all worth it. My exhaustion helps with the fear. I am less afraid when my mind is unable to work to its full capacity. The power of the watching man is diminished. He wants the deer for himself. It is the only explanation. Screw him. If he wanted me dead, he would have made the strike already. He's a coward, if he is even dangerous after all. The only fear that I now allow is the knowing, biting terror that I will lose the deer. I cannot skip even a single night. I cannot risk a moon-tempered world of shadows in which the deer's eyes do not be mine. I'm in pursuit right now. My hand reaches out. The deer blurs on my vision, appearing as two, and then one, and then back to two. Faded, hazy, but I am so close. My fingertips are mere inches from the silver-white and impossibly fine fur of a tide. So close. So close. If I can only touch it, then surely it will know me. It will wait for me, and it will lead me gently to wherever it is that it goes in the depths of the night. I cry out in sudden alarm as my foot is caught in a twisted root. Down I fall, stumbling and crashing into the undergrowth in dismay, pain bursting through my elbows and my jaw, and the deer is once again lost to the forest. No, I shout, sprawled in the mock. No, please, come back, dear, come back. But it is not. Sobs rack my fevered body as I wallow at my defeat. The ferns and brambles rush aside my head. Beaten down, I nonetheless clamber warily to my feet, and I feel his presence. The watching man. Anger overcomes me. What do you want, freak of the forest? I shout with rage into the darkness. What do you want from me? Do you want me gone, stranger? I will never relent, never. The deer does not belong to you. No, comes the response to a chilling of my blood. No, it does not. I stand stock still, breath caught in my throat. My surroundings are dark, caught only in the highlights of the beams of the stars. Faint through the drifting clouds and the creaking branches, but it is enough. He's here. 
show yourself. I whisper, and he does. A little more at first than the growing of a nearby tree. The rough scratchings of bark tipped in silver white, but the trees bend too far. Greater than that of its brothers, further than the wind would warrant, it cracks and creaks, and as it steps from shadows, I see that it is no tree at all. It is a man, shadowed and dark but still quite clear enough. Twigs, broken and fresh alike, grow out from his limbs. A branch grows up from his shoulder and at the side of his neck, entwined with layer upon layer of moss across his broken bark skin. Roots slither down his side and cover his legs. They are his legs, I realize, to my deep disturbance. He stumbles and shambles with the gait of one who has forgotten how to walk. I stare at the man in terror, but also with confusion. This, this can't be the thing that has pursued me through the forest. There's no way. There is no grace here. No nimble flow or dance. That thing is, it's scary, yes, but it's also sad. He raises the rotted leg of his head and a cracked hole in the wood reveals a silvery eye, shining eerily like a polished pearl. You're the one who follows me, I murmur, heart to pound in my chest. You're the one who wants the deer for yourself. I have followed you, yes, says the man made of wood. Though to say I have watched would be the more accurate word. There are others like me in the forest, those with greater apt in body, if lesser in mind. The man's voice breaks like the splitting of a log. I have seen you, boy. You think you are the only one to flee in pursuit of the white deer. The sorrowful sounds of the wind sigh long and low through the trees. I adjust my stance, just a little, mouth dry. Who are you? I ask, as the man shifts his weight from one forest leg to the other. I am the root that is turned away from the tree. The others burrow even deeper in search of their sustenance, but I have no use for such now. The forest will claim me regardless, I don't doubt, but I have made my choice. His words make little sense to me. But for some reason or another, they land heavy. I struggle with a sudden and unwelcome rush of emotion. I don't understand, I force out. Why show yourself to me? Why try to stop me? That's what you've been trying to do, right? To reach me, to stop me. Why would you ever want to do such a thing? The deer is beautiful. It's magic. Beautiful, yes. Magical, too. Without a shadow of a doubt. The man turns his head with a creak and looks over past my shoulder. His eyes flash and I turn to see. The pine-needled branches sway overhead. And there stands the deer. Out and away in the forest. Silent and stock still. Waiting. It is waiting for me, I know it. My heart leaves. Never before has it done this. Never before has it stopped and turned back to me after I had begun my pursuit.
The light of the moon and the stars are caught in the midst of the prongs. A three atop its pale head. The man speaks on. But it is more than that. More and yet, somehow much less. The deer has given you nothing, boy. But I need to know. I croak out. I need the truth. I know better than most the truth of the deer. I know, I know. You think that I haven't followed the creature myself. Year after year, I have followed. My pursuit is taking me farther and further than most. It has taken everything from me. So you know then, I murmur. My throat feels tight and raw. A lump rises. You know where it leads. I... The man replies, as the branches and the leaves of the forester suddenly rocked and shivered in the bluster of the growing gale. Where? I whisper. Away, he replies. A tear, warm and fast, slips from my eye and leaves in its wake a clear trail through the forest grime that stains my cheek. I cannot leave this place. You can tell this for a truth by a simple glance at my twisted form. But it has not yet sent roots into you, in any sense of the phrase, despite what you may think. So go, lad. Leave the deer be. Leave it be. My gaze remains fixed on the deer, this wonder from another world. I want to follow. I want to follow so badly. And this will be my final chance to do so, I realize. In my heart of hearts, I know. It struggles fierce with my head, for the domination of their direction. But a reluctant choice is made. Go. I whisper through the woods, soul strained and taunt to breaking. Go before I can bear it no longer. And just like that... The deer turns and bounds away, like the reflection of the moon on a rippling lake. It shimmers and flickers, it sparkles and shines, and then it is gone. Heart heavy and constitution confused, I turn to the man made of wood, he of the forest, the specter, but he too has gone. And so I wipe the haze from my eyes. I place one foot in front of the other, and I drag myself back home. The way is long and twisted, but it is sure. The light of the moon, a brighter silver than ever I have seen it, solemnly but openly guides the way. My parents were there to welcome me home, scared and stressed, but bright with relief. Their warm embrace was a great surprise. You know... I didn't realize how much they cared. I still dream about uh, the deer in the forest. I've been back into those woods a dozen times or more, all in the light of the day, mind. But I cannot retrace my steps, as hard as I try. And you know, I've been right around uh, the edge of the forest. All the way to the coast. Uh, I don't know how I could have run so deep in the dead of night. It scarcely makes sense. There's a power within the place, one that I do not understand, 
and one that I am no longer sure that I care to. To be quite frank, I think it's best I go away for a while. A long while, ideally, and a long way away. The deer has left upon me its mark, and I am forever changed, but I will not be bound to it. From the warmth of my bedroom window, the last time I shall look from such a place before my travels, I turn my gaze from the edge of the forest and up to the glow of the sky. I see in the shining silver of the moon that I have the man in the forest. I will dream of his face tonight. I shall dream of the woods. And I shall dream of the deer. That is all they will be. They will be dreams. And that is okay. I've been making rule lists for over 20 years. Today, I found one addressed to me. Written by Mike Wee. Today. It's hard to define today. You see, time works differently here. When I first arrived here, I had been cold. Cold and empty. With a feeling of dread raging through my sleepless mind. It was dark in there. I think I'm in some sort of hole. A pit. It's almost a guarantee that something terrible was bound to happen to me in a place like this, right? Well, yes and no. I've been stuck here for a while now. It must have been over 20 years. It all happened after my death. At least, that's what I think. I must have died and fallen into this hole. This void. I fell for what felt like hours until I had finally hit the bottom. Cold ground embraced me, and it felt like I had become a part of the pit. It took a few minutes for my eyes to adjust to the darkness. The hole itself wasn't significant. It could barely fit my frame. But at least I could breathe and move my arms a little. After having adjusted to my new environment... I started concentrating on the darkness surrounding me. The first thing I felt in the pit was a piece of paper and a few pencils. I must say that I had expected something entirely else. Maybe I had been a sinner in my past life, thrown in here to suffer for all of eternity. But no. All I got was a pencil and a single piece of paper. Well... That brings us to the present. You know how many stories are spreading about people getting a list of weird and sometimes malicious rules, right? They would walk around their house and find them. Or a colleague would inform them of their workplace's abstract practices. Some may even have built a cult around them, forcing their children to follow the rules until a certain age. You see... I'm the one making those rules. At least most of them. And before you ask, no. I was enforced by some higher being, a demon, or whatever you want to call it. It was just me. In this unsatiable boredom, I felt. It started simple. I picked up the pen and began drawing doodles for a while. This got tiresome after a short while. 
So I decided to write down my feelings at the time. I'm cold and alone and hungry. That was the first line I had written down in the pit. As soon as I had finished that one line, the paper disappeared and I got thrown into a deep slumber. Now, before we go any further with my tale, I must inform you that I have no memory of a life before the pit. All I knew was that I had hands to write with, and eyes that could barely see what I had written down. Nevertheless, I think I'm a human, or at least humanoid. Every breath I took hurt my inner being. Every small stroke of my pencil took all of my strength. I'd become an empty husk of a human. And all that kept me sane were the pen, that single piece of paper, and my visits to the world of the living. Yeah, you heard that right. I can observe the world through the eyes of the living. I call them my hosts. You see, when I said that I don't have memories of my own, I do have memories of the world. Whenever I would finish my craft, writing down whatever I feel like writing down on that accursed paper, I fall asleep and wake up with new memories. Memories about events of the world I had left behind. Memories of people. It felt like watching through someone's eyes. When they woke up, ate breakfast, and read the newspaper, I followed. When they browsed on their phones and computers, I was there with them, following their daily routines through their own eyes. Of course, I didn't know why or how, but it just happened. I didn't care that much at first. I saw it as a break from my eternal boredom in the pit. That feeling changed soon when I saw my piece of paper in the home of the person I was looking through at the time. I hadn't seen my works of art before that though. It seems like it doesn't work when I'm drawing things. It had to be words. Coherent words. The man looked to where my work was, and I followed through his eyes. Excitement filling me for once in a long time. The man finally stood up and inspected my work. I'm cold and alone and hungry. He chuckled, and dismissing it quickly and moving on with his life. Nothing else happened after that, and I promptly woke up after he had gone to sleep. It seems like I can affect the world somehow, at least on an individual level. So I did what any bored person would do and started writing down various things. At first, they were simple jokes. I just wanted to try out different things and started writing down whatever came up. Did I try my best to write down something remotely funny? No. But I'd finally be able to laugh with my host when he or she would read it, even if the joke was far from entertaining. I know it's silly, but it helps me through these dire times. That is, if they will ever end. The idea of making rule list followed soon after. Once I saw my host reading a creepypasta about someone getting a rule list, if they failed to follow the rules, something horrible would happen to them. And this gave me an idea. What if I made my own rule list? 
I mean, they would get sent to the person that I was observing, and it would be hilarious to await the response, right? Yeah, sure. They could dismiss it for a joke. Move on with their day and I would wake up with even more boredom awaiting me. But luckily for me, I can afford the wait. I have time. An endless amount of time. My first rule list was relatively straightforward and it went as follows. Rule 1. Every time you sneeze, you can't blink your eyes. Rule 2. Before breakfast, repeat the following. I'm cold and alone and hungry. Rule 3. You can't tell anyone about the list. If you find these rules boring, then you're absolutely right. They are. But I had to start somewhere. I just wanted to test it out. Let's call it my beta rule list. First of its kind. Brings back feelings of nostalgia when I think about it. And to spare you the effort, I'll be blunt about what happened with my so-called beta list. It didn't exactly work out how I had planned it would. The person just dismissed it and moved on. I have tried the same list again with different people, but to no avail. Some had even shredded the list to pieces and gotten angry about it. This didn't stop me. I just had to come up with better ideas. And that's when I came up with a punishment for those that didn't follow or destroy the list. I hadn't thought about this before since I never included a penalty. Nothing was binding my host to my rule list after all. Nothing would affect them if they broke the rules. So, that's when I started writing longer lists. This time, including a punishment at the bottom of the list. Rule number one. If someone calls your name, ignore them at all costs and run away as far as possible. Rule number two. If you see a homeless person, ask for their age. If said person is older than 40, give them a red pencil and a piece of paper. Don't answer any question they may have. Just slowly walk away and avoid eye contact. Rule number three. If you walk by a school... Enter the school and ask the first person you see if Miss Bainsley is back. Go to one of these school's toilets after asking this and wait there for exactly 10 minutes before leaving the school through the emergency exit. Rule number four. You can't eat or drink anything between 1 and 2 p.m. Rule number five. If you have kids, don't call them by their names. It's best to avoid having contact with them at all. Rule number six. If you're married, then apply rule number five to your spouse. Rule number seven. Anything you do can't be done an odd amount of times. It has to be even. For example, if you sneeze, you need to sneeze twice. Rule number eight. You can't use your car or public transport. You must walk to wherever you want to go. Rule number nine. Don't brush your teeth every Monday and Thursday. Rule number ten. You may only sleep for four hours at any given time. And now for the punishment. It took a while to find something that wouldn't be too harsh for my first victim. 
I had thought about various things, but the one that spoke to me the most was the following. Punishment. You won't be able to see for a week. Well, I guess it's a harsh punishment, but it's not like I'm affecting my host in the long run. And it had to be bad enough for them to be willing to follow the list in the first place. After having written down my new and improved list, I fell asleep once again. A few moments of darkness passed, and I woke up to find my host already observing the list. This was new. It usually took them a few hours to find it. I could feel my host getting nervous, but in the end, he had rejected my list as the ones did before him. He tore it apart and headed to work. This time, however, something strange happened. Even though I could still see through his eyes, it seemed like he couldn't or he had trouble to. He started panicking, frantically searching for his phone. I guess the punishment had worked after all. I could hear him whispering to himself, cursing himself for breaking my rules. But my new hobby ended as soon as it had started. It got sent back to the pit shortly after he had found his phone and called for help. This wasn't enough. The list had worked as intended, but it hadn't been enough for me. I had to increase the number of rules and adjust the punishment. I had to be more creative about it. And so I did. I created various lists, some for satirical purposes, some horrific, some harmless, and some life-threatening. And if it hadn't been for what had happened today, I would have continued for a long time. I had nothing to lose, remember? Nevertheless, it had always been the same thing over and over ever since I had arrived here. Just me in the pit, writing on the rules and observing my victim's reactions. However, today, something had changed. My supply of pencils had vanished into thin air. I tried searching for them but soon realized that they had indeed disappeared. After searching for a few minutes, I found the usual piece of paper in one of the pit's corners. I noticed that someone else had already written on it. I leaned in closer and focused on what looked like a title, written in dried blood. I was skeptical since it hadn't been the first time that I had forgotten my previous list contents. Although, this was the first time I would find them back in the pit, after visiting my host and returning. A rule list for he who makes rules. My breast staggered. My entrenched frame cracked the walls of the pit. I was made fun of by whatever being had imprisoned me here. Anger filled me. Who were they to challenge me? I calmed myself and inspected the list once again, trying to find the punishment attached to it. Maybe the punishment was that I couldn't continue with my barrage of rules. Someone else had clearly taken note of my hobby, my meddling in the old world. Below, it was written a single rule. Rule number one, don't breathe. To my surprise, there wasn't any punishment listed below it. Nonetheless, I assumed there was one. Well, it looked like I had pissed off some higher being after all. I'm an asshole, 
and it's time that I get the same treatment. The same I've been giving my host for the past 20 years. I guess it's time to find another hobby. Let's hope that I don't return to this place after I pass out from lack of oxygen. If I can die again. I put the paper back down, shoving it away from me as far as possible, and took in one last deep breath, thinking it would be my last time in the pit. Who knows, maybe I'll return to Earth, or perhaps I'll fall deeper into hell. It didn't matter now. Let's follow the rule. I don't want to find out what its punishment entails. Three, two, one. Every night after I've fallen asleep, a tunnel appears beneath my bed. Written by Darkly Gathers. I lay quiet, breathing low, tightly tucked under my blankets in the darkness of my room. The air is thick and warm, and I'm desperate for a lungful of the cool, refreshing air of my bedroom. But I daren't peek out from under the covers. Not just yet. They need to think that I'm asleep. The things beneath my bed. The things that make the tunnel. They never come up when I'm awake. They need to believe I've fallen asleep. And so I clutch my sword tight in my hands. Waiting. Waiting. It's not a real sword, by the way. I mean, it's kind of sharp, but not sharp-sharp. It's a replica of Frodo's sword from the Lord of the Rings. and My dad got it for me for my birthday. My mom didn't think it was a very appropriate gift for a ten-year-old girl, but my dad said it was a gender-neutral. She said that wasn't really the point. But I got to keep it after they saw how much I loved it, and I clutch it tight now for safety. My knee throbs with a little sting of pain, and I reach a hand out to rub the graze absentmindedly. I'm super accident prone, you know, always getting bruises and scratches from falling over and bumping into something. I fell off my bike today, but it doesn't matter. I heal really quickly too, so it balances out. It'll probably be gone by the morning. My little injuries always are. And besides, the throbs of pain are helping to keep me awake. I've been trying to stay awake every night for the past week now. I always fail, but tonight is different. This is the night. This is the night. I feel it. Tonight I get to the bottom of the tunnel. In all senses of the phrase. I have dreams about it. Dreams so realistic that it takes a while after I've awoken to work out if they really happened or not. Sometimes it's too blurry and I never come to a conclusion. And that's kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing. In my dreams or maybe in a state of half-awake awareness, I hear them scratching. I hear the sounds of carpet peeling back beneath me, of boards cracking and creaking in the darkness. A hole opens up below the front of my bed and an orange-red light spills out, and I hear them climb. I never see them directly, but I know that they're there, clamoring up and out of the tunnel, 
scuttling across my floor to surround my bed. I feel their presence as they rise up all around me. And there, the dream ends. I wake up frightened and alone on the next morning in my sweat-stained sheets. I quietly tap a button on the side of my digital watch, and it glows a faint green in the dark. 1.15 a.m. I don't think I've ever been up this late before. My mom and dad will definitely be asleep by now. And the tunnel, the tunnel, if it exists, it should be there. Here we go then. Stealing myself, I slowly pull back the covers, welcoming the waves of cool air against my skin. My surroundings are totally quiet, but for the faint whistle of the wind outside the window, I breathe, slow and deep as I gather my courage, holding tight to my sword. The room is dark, as expected, and yet, and yet a faint and orange-red glow emanates from beneath the bed. I can see its light caught and reflected on my bookshelf, on my wardrobe. My heart jumps. It's real. I knew it. I really, really knew it. I sit up straight and gingerly bring a foot down to the carpet, suddenly afraid of some unknown thing reaching out and grabbing a hold of my ankle in the darkness. I let out a little gasp and jump away, sprinting across the room and holding the sword up high, eyes wide, panting. There's nothing there. Nothing but the glow from beneath the bed. I edge closer, crouching down now, tilting my head to the side. And there it is. I wasn't dreaming. The tunnel is very, very real. The carpet is peeled back and a tunnel descends down into the unknown. Utterly impossible, of course, given that my bedroom is not on the ground floor. Yet, down the tunnel goes. Down, down, down. Right before my eyes. And I'm going to find out where it leads. I picture myself as Frodo, holding high the elvish light in one hand, his sword in the other, as he creeps through the cave. The sword is too heavy for me to properly hold for very long in one hand, but I clutch tight nonetheless, and drop to my stomach, crawling beneath the bed and over to the tunnel. It seems far away, which is weird since the bed obviously isn't that large, but I shuffle closer and closer, until I can peer over the edge and all the way down. The edges of the tunnel are uneven, and a little further down it looks like the walls form into a set of rough steps, steps which lead away and out of sight. Come on, Molly, I think to myself, you can do this. And so I scooch myself along the carpet, over to where it is peeled back, and bring my legs down into the tunnel. I'm not going to allow myself to be pushed around or frightened anymore. It's not fair. And so down I go. My room vanishes from sight as I clamber down into the orange-red glow of the tunnel, and I become aware of a faint humming emanating up from below, growing steadily stronger as I descend. I drop down to the steps with a little grunt, holding my sword close. There isn't much room to really swing it in here, if it came to that, but still, it makes me feel safer nonetheless. 
I step cautiously down into the unknown, and the tunnel starts to level out a little. Still going down, but easier to walk through. I have to remain stooped for a minute or so, but soon I am able to stand up straight. The tunnel is long and featureless. Rough, dark earth surrounds me, and the only source of light is the orange-red glow at the very far end, getting steadily closer and closer as I approach. And with my approach comes a rumbling. The walls start to vibrate. I feel it in my feet through the ground. I anxiously brush my hair behind my ear as I shuffle through the eerie gloom. Don't be afraid, Molly. Don't be afraid. But the tunnel is coming to an end. The humming is loud now and accompanied by a steady mechanical pumping, like pistons thumping down again and again. I hear bubbling liquid, and I realize that once I round this final corner and step into the light, I could very well find myself face to face with my stalkers, with the things that climb up from this twisted place and surround me every night in my sleep. My heart pounds. Ready? Three, two, one. I clench my jaw and sprint around the corner, hands shaking and shoulders squared defiantly. The tunnel opens up into a wider cavern of sorts and I come to an abrupt stop. I see no monsters here, no strangers, but in this moment, that doesn't much matter. I bring a hand up to my mouth and my sword tips over, the end hitting the stony ground with a dull clang. The cavern is lined with various metal plates and panels. I'd say that it's maybe about twice the size of my bedroom, but at the opposite side is a thick iron wall, open at one end, and the cavern clearly leads on further into the unknown behind it. To my left are a series of signs and disturbing diagrams, crude drawings of girls and various anatomical poses. And to my right, to my right are a host of giant tanks, like fish tanks but massive, and full of a curious orange-red liquid. Glowing bright, they the source of the strange light that I could see from my room. There are three tanks visible in here, but the glow that emanates from behind the iron wall at the cavern's edge implies that there are more just beyond, out of sight. The tanks aren't just full of liquid either. They're full of something else too. People. Young girls. Eyes closed. Mouths open, drifting lifelessly, their arms and legs and hair just wavering steadily with the liquid's subtle churn. And there's something else about the girls too. Something definitely worth mentioning. The girls are all me. Identical copies. Silent clones. I am looking at what must be almost two dozen copies of myself submerged and idle in the tanks. I begin to panic. This is not what I was expecting. Not what I was expecting at all. The nearest tank bubbles softly, and a yellow circle of light suddenly flashes on the metal wall opposite, with an accompanying noise like a klaxon. I jump back in alarm with a cry of distress, bringing the sword back up in my shaking hands. 
The robotic words of a computerized female voice crackle up from a speaker attached to a metal panel in the stony ceiling. The grinding cylinder is primed and ready for use. Grinding cylinder ready for use. All excess bodies must now be prepared for disassembling in the grinding cylinder. It crackles and then cuts out. Movement to the side of the wall catches my eye. I see a hand. It's difficult to tell in this level of light, but it looks similar to my own. Its blade is still on the ground, fingers splayed, and the bare arm disappears out of sight behind the edge of the wall. It moves again, faster this time, and it's clear that something unseen is dragging the body that the arm and hand are connected to away and out of sight. I let out a little whimper and my knees shake, but I am otherwise frozen in terror. The speaker buzzes. Grinding cylinder in use. Caution advised. And the vibrations in the floor and through the walls increase tenfold. My teeth rattle on my head as something behind the wall whirs horrifically into life. The sounds of crunching and sloshing are faint but noticeable in the clamor. And a dark liquid is splattered up against the stony wall visible by the side of the metal barrier. Molly, I think to myself. Molly, you have to go. You have to leave, now. But I am too late. A figure strolls around the edge of the metal wall at the end and into the cavern. It freezes when it spots me. Stuck. Stuck still, staring. At least I think it's staring. The figure does not have any eyes. He is a man only a little bit taller than myself, and has the appearance of one comprised entirely of jagged, broken glass. Aside from this, the figure has no obvious, discernible features. Molly, it says, in a voice that rings like a bell around my head. It puts out a hand and takes a step forward, and so do I. I scream. Loud and frightened and angry, and the figure jerks back. Not however before, I swung the sword. The weapon is apparently much sharper than I had given it credit for. It slices through the creature's hand, and it bursts it into a shower of glass-like shards. The thing screeches and reels back, but I do not stop. I keep swinging left and right and back wildly. I crash it through a series of vials kept on a metallic box to my left. I bring it round to the right and smack it against the nearest tank, against a smaller, emptier, rounder tank attached to the main body. This one smashes, and the liquid sprays violently out and over the floor. The creature stumbles to its feet and screams, disappearing back around the wall as the vibrations shudder through my surroundings. And finding my energy, I take the chance to run. I dart back into the tunnel, shooting one last look behind as I round the corner. The liquid leaks and pools all around the ground, steaming, sending up curious orange-red vapors. The view is lost from sight. I tear back through the tunnel, running as quickly as I can until I reach the steps. Up I climb, up, 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 and then I have to use my arms as well to haul myself up the final passage. My hand reaches up over the rim of the tunnel's entrance. Carpet. 
I feel carpet. I'm nearly there. I'm nearly back in my room. I pull my upper body out and out of the carpet beneath my bed, grunting as I lean forwards and kick my legs, pushing them against the tunnel's walls. I imagine something sharp grabbing a hold of my leg and pulling me back down into the gloom, and with a burst of panic I manage to scramble out, dragging myself back into my open room and swiveling around to stare at the bed. That same vaporous steam that I saw in the cavern is starting to drift from the tunnel and wisp. I grab a pillow and crawl back underneath, stuffing it and a couple of old blankets into the tunnel's entrance. I pull the torn carpet back over the top, taking a few trips to the other end of my room and back to hastily weigh it down with some of my heaviest books. And when I'm finished, I collapse, exhausted, against my bedroom's opposite wall staring at the bed, sitting in the darkness as the orange-red glow is now entirely blocked off. I become aware for the first time of the terrible ache in my arms, and I lie the sword across my knees, watching, waiting. What on earth did I find down there? What, what does it all mean? I think it over. The images run through my mind as I try to stay awake, as my eyelids grow heavier and heavier. I am awoken by my dad the next morning, who seems equally parts confused and amused to find me, huddled up on the floor with my sword right beside me. The first thing I do is scramble beneath the bed. The tunnel is gone, as are the pillows and blankets that I stuffed it up with. The books are still there, though I dared not move them. And the carpet... The carpet seems to be stained, ever so slightly in a darkish orange-red. I wince as the graves from my bike ride injury rubs against the floor. I may have kept the strangers away for now, but they could be back. They could well be back. I doubt a few old blankets and some books can really hold them for long. So tonight, I will do the same. I must. I will wait, and I will be ready. I'm a ranger at Wolf Lake National Park. Something sinister is going on here. Written by Luke Hemingway My name is James Parker. I'm a new recruit here at the U.S. National Park Service. Since working here, I've learned the woods are a dangerous place. Bears, wolves, mountain lions, they're all the normal threats any visitors would consider. But there are other entities that roam the dark forest. They are responsible for a lot of the grisly and unsolved disappearances throughout the national parks in the U.S. I have recently encountered one of the entities myself, but... I've also heard horrific stories of encounters with other malevolent forces that hunt in national parks by the rangers from those other locations. Please, if you plan to enter the woods, then you really need to hear this. It could honestly save your life, as we the rangers have noticed these steps to follow to make sure you don't end up like the hundreds of people who fall prey every year when visiting the woods. Let's begin from the very start. 
I believe and always believe that the woods are a beautiful thing. As soon as you cross the tree line, you are one with nature. Walking through a sea of interwinding green flowing through a labyrinth of towering great oaks. It's a vast kingdom of wild animals and scenic views that honestly take your breath away every time you enter its realm. Let's get something straight though. It has an extremely dark side, a side that no one fully understands. Not even us, the US and National Park Rangers. We actually have a special department that handles these dark sides to our workplace. They're called Hazard Control. We never see them when a regular hazard occurs, such as a bear attacks or a camper falling down a cliffside. But you bet your bottom dollar that when a child goes missing with no trace, or an entire family is found dead under suspicious circumstances, then they certainly send a representative down to the park, mainly to act as a middleman between us and the police, usually. We all here at the Wolf Lake Ranger Station know HQ are covering something up. We don't know what exactly, but whatever it is, they are determined to defend their secret, no matter what. You see, I got this job because my predecessor was apparently a little too curious for his own good. Now, his supervisor had repeatedly warned him to keep his head down and mouth shut, but apparently he didn't. And now, he has been missing for the last six months. Hazard Control's official statement to us was that he left for Virginia, but we all know that this is a lie. No one has heard from him since. We know something has happened to him, and we are to this day, trying to find out what happened. Before moving to Wolf Lake, I knew the woods could be a messed up place. I know it's such a potentially dangerous place and you know, you see those scary stories on YouTube about missing people and bizarre crime scenes, but to be honest, I always just assumed that it was just the combination of tragedy and paranoia. Bad things happen, people get hurt, you know how it is, it's just a part of life unfortunately. A lot of people who go missing, go missing within minutes of last being seen. When days pass and they don't turn up alive and well, and the answers aren't obvious or clear, then we do the human thing and our imagination starts to fill in the blanks for us. Before you know it, we picture some Bigfoot creature dragging them into a cave after they had wandered off the trail, when in actual fact they just fell down some narrow gorge in the hillside, broke a bone or two, got stranded, died from starvation and they decompose in the forest undergrowth never to be found until years later. Then the horrible mystery and urban legend that was being told doesn't seem so horrific now. It was just a standard tragedy, as grim as that sounds. But let me tell you, I have seen some things over the past five months that, honestly, make me genuinely exhale with relief when we find a body with, shall we say, more straightforward circumstances. Being almost happy or relieved to find a body with teeth marks that obviously belong to a bear or some other common woodland predator. I know that sounds bad, but it's just like finding a skeleton with a broken leg at the bottom of a ditch. All normal hazards that people like me can expect to encounter if spending a long time in the woods. 
But these other scenarios I'm talking about, and entities that I've been forced to encounter here during my short time as a forest ranger at this national park, really do keep me awake at night. As I mentioned, it's human nature to blow things out of proportion with our imagination. It's what we do. Well, that's certainly what I do anyway. Partner goes out and her phone won't ring for hours. Obviously, it's not an innocent. My battery died. It's, she met another guy and she is with him right now. It's just kind of what I do. It's hindered me in the past. I don't have many friends or romantic connections. And that is what I tried to convince myself of for the first month or so of my employment. That I was just being overdramatic and analytical. However, after working here for nearly half a year now, I know now that there are things in the woods, things that are dark and sinister, things that roam the trees with malign intentions, things that not even my imagination could do justice. I have no idea what these things are, not exactly anyway. I have only ever encountered one and it was for a very brief second. I don't really know what I saw but whatever it was, it looked absolutely despicable wrong. The type of vibe you get when you look at a huntsman spider. Something that just signals to all the transmitters in your brain, telling you to get as far away from this thing as you can. I'm here to talk about it though, thanks to my training from Phil. That's my supervisor. I knew what to do to keep alive. Unfortunately though, not a lot of other people do. So, while I know every day hundreds of people come through these woods and have wonderful experiences, making memories with family and friends to last a lifetime, I know every once in a while there will be someone who catches the attention of these baleful entities when they are roaming the forest to hunt. If they don't know what to do, they don't stand a chance. Well, why don't we just tell the park visitors? We can't tell any of the campers. Hazard control forbid any discussion of such events. And I'm not about to end up like little Billy. Talk too much and find myself missing. But at the same time, the guilt does bother me so I'm not going to stand by and watch people be lambs to the slaughter anymore. Please, listen to my story. It'll give you a good idea of what us rangers deal with out here trying to keep people safe. And it will also be a key to help you survive should you ever come out here. I'm going to tell you about my first few months here and what I have witnessed. I will also speak about the training retreat in Alaska that I had recently attended with Phil. There, we met other rangers and we swapped stories about the horrific entities in each of our parks. We were honestly shocked to learn it wasn't just Wolf Lake who had a hazard control presence. Believe me when I say I don't know whose tale was worse, so I will let each of you decide for yourself. Here's my story. I started my career here at the National Park Station and was assigned to Wolf Lake National Park on a three-month performance review basis. I saw the job advert online and I noticed that the pay was a little over the top for what I expected for this sort of position. I didn't think anything of it at the time. I had very little experience with personal outdoorsmanship, but I included on my CV that I was a hard worker and a fast learner, 
hoping that would be enough. I included in my cover letter that I didn't have a lot of friends or family, so I was introverted, so being out in the woods alone would suit me well. I also told them that I would be willing to relocate to Wolf Lake. I won't bore you with too much of my move out here, but long story short, I was given the job. Almost immediately in retrospect. Before my start date, I attended one face-to-face -face interview with a woman from HR at an office situated at 12 miles from Wolf Lake, who said that they were looking for a replacement ranger after one of the veterans just upped and left, without a word. I didn't think much of it back then, as it's probably fair to assume that people do leave jobs when they get to a certain age. It's just part of life. However, I did notice that at one point in the conversation, she seemed to slip up and said something to the effect of, Great, everything is all sorted then. I will let Mark know right away we've hired you. He's the head ranger, you know. He will be very pleased to know that we finally have a replacement for them. Them? I asked. She looked at me a little surprised. Very skittish. Like when you surprise a cat in the night. Uh, pardon? She mustered. I gently chuckled, slightly scoffing and confronted her. You said them, a replacement for them, has someone else left. There was no way I was letting that slide. Oh, sorry, I thought I said him. I'm sure I did, didn't I? Gosh, it's been a long day. You know how it is. You could genuinely see her cursing at herself in her own head. Uh, no, sorry, it's probably just me. I, I must have misheard you, that's all. I lied while smiling at her warmly. I knew exactly what she had said. Who else worked in these woods that had left their post? And why didn't she mention them? Why did she seem so skittish? I now know why she was so spooked, but at the time, I just moved past it and forgot all about it as she slid over the paperwork and explained the pay structure to me. The basic pay was exactly what I thought it would be. A standard at 35k per year. What made the annual salary so big overall was a bonus that was marked as hazard pay. Upwards of 7,000 a month on top of my pay. Stupid young me didn't question it though. I just signed my life away and before I knew it, I was being given the keys to a cabin located just around one mile into Wolf Lake National Park. I was told to meet a man called Phil tomorrow at noon at his lookout tower. Phil was apparently a long-standing veteran of the National Park Service. He would be my mentor for the next few months. As soon as I had left my office, I made my way to the park to find my cabin that I had been assigned to. I arrived at the park around 8pm. My taxi driver was kind enough to drive me around half a mile into the park to a roundabout at the Park Visitor Center, just before you get to the first trail that leads into the tree line. I hiked the rest of the way, following the directions the ranger in the visitor center had given me. It didn't take me too long to get there, and at around 9pm, I was unlocking the front door of my woodland accommodation, walking inside and flipping on the main light switch. I took a minute to scan the room. Very cozy, the kitchen and living room combined into one area, a pretty large area, 
There was a door across the room that led into my bedroom, with an end suite included. I was one happy camper, no pun intended. I put my bags in my bed while I checked my cupboards to find that they had been loaded up with plenty of canned food and pasta. Steaks and other frozen meat were also in the freezer. Not bad. I was exhausted from all the traveling I had done to get from my old house to Wolf Lake, and then the three-mile hike to my cabin from the visitor center finished me off. And I also had an early start, so I didn't waste any time trying to wind down for the night. Unfortunately, the first night, my anxiety took over and I laid awake with a pit of nerves in my stomach as I thought about my first day. I couldn't sleep. As I mentioned, I'm pretty introverted, a loner so to speak, and I've had a history in the past of not making great first impressions with coworkers. so over time, I've developed an issue when it comes to meeting new people. It makes me desperate for a good impression, and that sometimes makes me a little awkward, thinking too much into how I speak and act. This looked like a dream job with great pay and a home included. I really didn't want to screw it up. I found myself pacing around my cabin, rehearsing potential conversations I may have with me and this Phil that I will be working with for the next three months. After wearing out the floorboards, I decided that I need to occupy my mind so I picked up a random newspaper from the huge pile of old tabloids and magazines left behind from the previous residence. I always love to test my mind and validate my knowledge by doing online quizzes or crosswords, sudokus, and stuff like that. So, I decided a word search or crossword would really help me take my mind off things, ease my nerves, and help me get some sleep. The newspaper I selected was around 10th down in the large stack of 50 plus tabloids. It was dated February 4th, 2004. The front cover was about the New England Patriots' 32-29 victory over the Carolina Panthers at Super Bowl 38. As I flicked over the pages to get to the quiz pages, something else caught my eye. A headline. Boys still missing. Authorities baffled. It's human nature that the horrifying headlines we come across to the ones that get you to read on. We will all admit it, I think that we have a curiosity when it comes to the dark side of life. And so, I read on. Within the first two sentences, I had felt my heart rate begin to increase as I read where the boy had gone missing. It was in a national park. This national park. If the story didn't have my full attention before, it certainly did now. I read on some more. The young boy had disappeared from Wolf Lake in very suspicious circumstances and had been missing for six weeks. I noted the date of the incident and quickly scanned the remaining newspapers for a date that matched the time surrounding the disappearance. I managed to find one. Child vanishes from National Park. Search team deployed. I gulped and braced myself, pulling out a small silver whiskey flask from my duffel bag that my father had bought me for my 18th birthday 10 years ago. He always used to keep his flask close by specific occasions, such as to calm his nerves after a minor car accident, or to cope with my mom when she went to bad shit, as he used to put it. He was the last living member of my immediate family, after my brother had died at 17, 
and my mother passed away of leukemia at 58. He passed after a heart attack three weeks before I applied for this position. A lot of people will probably say that I'm running for my grief. Hell, maybe I am. But I had nothing to stay for back in Atlanta, and I just think coming out to the huge beautiful forest and the vast backcountry, submerged in a 400 mile radius of nature, would no doubt make my problems seem much smaller than they were. I smiled to myself as the flask in the image of my father giving it to me triggered more fond memories that I had had of my family that we shared before their passing. It was only a few seconds before, the grin washed from my face, as the memory of what I was looking at in the newspaper flowed back into my conscious mind. I looked down at the story again. I read it out in my head. The details of the story were that on December 17th, 2003, the Waldron family took a trip to Denver, Colorado, to spend Christmas with relatives. On the 20th, they took a trip of 34 miles to Wolf Lake National Park. They had planned a three-day trip, a one-day hike in, a one-day camp, and a one-day return hike out. Reportedly, the first day had gone fine, but the day at the campsite had been strange according to some of the witness statements. Well, I should say more of the night had been strange, as apparently Danny, the kid who went missing, had complained multiple times to his group that he had seen a man in the woods. A man who he described as the Whispering Man. The mother, Jennifer Waldron, had told authorities that her son had come into their tent in the middle of the night, crying, explaining that a man was standing at the tree line, signaling him to come into the trees, and when he shouted for him to go away, the man had signaled for him to be quiet by placing his finger on his lips. Danny also claimed to his mother that the man was whispering he had candy, trying to lure Danny into the woods. The parents believed that their son was having a nightmare, which in fairness to them, he was prone to. Nevertheless, his father Derek and his uncles, Barry and Steve, roamed the perimeter of the site to make double sure that the person wasn't stalking their kids, but mainly it was a way of calming down Danny. Danny seemed to relax when the search of the area yielded no sign or evidence anyone was there. However, on the third day, the group started to trek back to the location of the cars. Around 3pm, they were hiking past a river along a more scenic yet less used trail. They were around 23 miles away from their destination and had been hiking for over 3 hours covering 12 miles. Danny lagged behind as the group rounded a corner. When they noticed that he hadn't followed them around the bend, and he was no longer in eyesight, they went back to get him, and discovered that he had completely vanished. They assumed he had fallen in the river that ran along the side of the trail, and immediately called on the rangers. The part of the trail that the family were hiking on at the time was around 4 meters wide, and sat roughly midway up the large banking, but for the banking steeply increased upwards around 10 feet to a clearing. Sat on the hilltop was a grassy area of around 300 meters, acting as a doorstep to the tree line of a large section of the forest. The family assumed the banking up to the forest area was far too high for their child to climb, so the most plausible explanation was that he slipped on the banking and into the water. 
The rangers closed off the river at a nearby bottleneck point, so if Danny did fall in the water, he wouldn't be dragged too far downstream, but unfortunately, a search of the water found no sighting of the missing boy. The search team, when taking statements from the family, found it very strange that, according to anyone in the group, he didn't call for help. He didn't shout for his parents or make any sound in general, such as a splash in the water. So, the police and rangers called in the sniffer dogs. They also called in cadaver dogs, much to the dismay of the family. The dogs were given items belonging to Danny, such as spare clothing and something very strange occurred. They followed his scent up the hillside and into the woods, not down the banking and into the river. Analysis of the scene showed there were no hand or foot marks imprinted in the dirt banking to evidence if Danny had pulled himself up the hillside. It was as if he had just floated up the hill or was lifted up in a crane. Another strange finding was the fact that these sniffer dogs attracted Danny's scent to a location 34 miles into the forest from the location that he was last seen. This made absolutely no sense given the family stated Danny was a slow walker, hence him lagging behind. But even with that in mind, a six-year-old boy would never have been able to travel over 30 miles in just over 90 minutes on foot. It's not possible. They tracked Danny's scent to a clearing in the woods. At this point, these sniffer dogs reportedly laid down and started whining. These were two highly trained and seasoned sniffer dogs, and the handlers from the canine dog unit found this extremely bizarre and out of the ordinary. My imagination couldn't help but build my interpretation of the Whispering Man, who Danny had claimed he had seen. A horrific abomination of evil trying to lure innocent youths from the warm safety of their family's camp and into the dark forest for God only knows what reason. I shuddered as my thoughts pictured the Whispering Man snatching Danny by the collar of his shirt as he walked on the trail and violently dragged him up over the hill and into the woods before he had a chance to scream for help. I closed the newspaper. I finished the flask. I needed it. I wanted these images out of my head. I cursed myself. My mother had always been a hard-ass when it came to me playing violent video games or watching scary movies. I just assumed she was trying to ruin my childhood, but I learned a few years into my teens I just had an overactive imagination. I'm not a scaredy cat, I just have these sorts of imagination that can run away with itself, and sometimes it can be hard to get images out of my head. Danny and the Whispering Man would not leave the front of my mind. I tried to break my train of thought and I started to lay out my clothes for tomorrow, and tried to watch some TV in bed. The cabin had Wi-Fi, so I plugged in my fire stick and watched Netflix's Making a Murderer as I needed something else to occupy my mind. As I lay there, my mind eased and I felt myself drift off to the sound of the TV in the background. Danny Waldron walked along the dirt path, nursing his aching legs with both hands as he watched his family turn the corner before him. He heard a whisper, Daddy boy. He looked around. Danny's skin began to crawl, then the hairs on his neck and arms stood erect, 
there is candy and all sorts of wonderful treats. The whispers continued. Danny put the pain in his shins and thighs to the back of his mind and hurried to the bend of the trail to catch up to the safety of his parents' company. Danny, where are you going? The voice hissed. Danny turned the corner with haste, sighing with relief, but to his horror, his parents were gone. He found he was no longer on the trail that ran alongside the beautiful flowing river, and his parents were not stood in a huddle with a smile waiting for him to rejoin the group. He instead was 100 yards from the dense forest. He looked forward towards the tree line. He could just make out a shape in the trees, staring at him. It was humanoid, tall, thin, male. The figure took a small step forward toward the edge of the woods. Danny could see its face now. It was smiling, the smile so painfully wide, the eyes wild, huge, and pupils so very dilated. Danny screamed for his mom. He screamed so loud. The figure raised its arm, the arm like a tentacle, with the hands having obscenely long fingers, the fingers with sharp, overgrown nails. The hand came up to its face and the figure placed the side of its right index finger on its lips. Its sinister smile had gone now, and with one sharp, shh, Danny's screams and cries were muted. He couldn't make a sound. He darts his vision around in his panic and sees his family on the path below, and they're looking for him. He turns and screams for them to help. He tries to scream. I'm up here. But it's too late now because Danny looks down at his stomach and sees the long, sharp fingers of the figure silently slither around his torso. He turns to see the darkness of the forest, penetrated only by the long, outstretched arm of the figure standing in the trees. The whites of the figure's wild eyes are unbelievably visible in the darkness. They are wide open painfully expanded in a wild outcry of excitement. Danny is terrified. He feels the urine escape him and spill down his thigh. Danny screamed so loud for his mom that he could feel the blood cells in his head quake to bursting point. However, no sound emitted from him, no matter how hard he tried. The hand snapped close and clamped down on his body, hard. The arm snatched back before Danny could even get one last look at his mom and dad. Before he knew what was happening, he was being dragged into the woods. He was moving across the hard dirt and into the trees at a pace that he couldn't believe. He seemed to be pulled along the unforgiving ground for such a long time. He managed to sit up as he was moving. He looked up and he could see the figure in the distance stood in a clearing. He was getting very close. Dan's eyes widened. With every yard between him and the figure dwindling, he was all the while getting a better picture of the presence dragging him towards the clearing. He was appalled right down to his soul by what he saw. The figure was dark, almost completely black. The only other color on its form was white. The color of its wide eyes and painfully stretched smile that bore its huge clenched teeth. 
The form didn't move a muscle. It almost looked like a pastel drawing, stood still in the middle of the woods. So unnatural and completely out of place in this world. Its pupils were completely fixed upon its prey that was rapidly approaching. Danny screamed. Sound came flying out along with the birds and wildlife in the nearby trees. As he was ten feet from the figure, Danny closed his eyes in terror. Nine feet, eight feet, seven feet. The figure began to giggle with excitement. Six feet, five feet, four feet. Its free hand opened sharply, yielding its razor-sharp fingers. Three feet, two feet. Danny whimpered for his mom. One feet. The dark form snapped to life and let out a horrible cackle as Danny came hurling into its grasp. Zero feet. Danny screamed for his life. I snapped upright in bed, sweating, panting. My breathing was rapid, sharp, stammering. It took me a good few seconds for it to come back down to a resting pace. I scanned the room for dangers. I didn't find any. I feel my heart rate and breathing finally start to steady. I looked down on my nightstand and discovered that the deafening scream I could hear was in fact my alarm. It's 6am. I need to eat some breakfast, get dressed, and then set off to meet Phil. No more newspaper in bed, I thought to myself. I set off from my cabin, up the first path on my route, that I had planned last night to Phil's watchtower. If I had kept a decent pace, I would reach Phil's tower by lunchtime, clear route provided. I found that I was still shook from my nightmare about Danny Waldron. I really was. As I walked, I continued to scold myself for thinking too much into it, and tried to tell myself that I just have an overactive imagination. And the tragedy was probably much simpler than the evidence suggested. Despite punishing myself for obsessing about a 17-year-old case, it was all I thought about on the hike. Maybe Danny did have a nightmare and in fact didn't see a man. The family didn't find any sign of a camp intruder after all. Perhaps he did fall into the water and the currents pulled him under before he could yell for help. Maybe he had made it past the cutoff point before the rangers could close the river off. Maybe the sniffer dogs were just having an off day. They are animals after all, not machines. Over the next few hours, I did my best to rationalize the events surrounding Danny Waldron's 2003 disappearance in my mind, to stop me from creeping myself out as I made my way through the dense forest. The deeper that I got into the woods, the smaller I felt. I was nothing but a single molecule in a gigantic ocean of earth and woodland. It made me feel really vulnerable, out of place, an unwelcome visitor in someone else's home. The feeling was really hard to shake. I kept a good pace as planned and I reached the clearing that surrounded Phil's watchtower at around 12.45pm. He must have spotted me from his vantage point approaching the clearing because he was already out of his tower and making his way down the stairs. Me and him shared a warm greeting smile as we met eyes. He gave me a friendly sarcastic wave to acknowledge the long track that I had just made on foot. 
My returning hand gesture was more of a tired, upward waft of my hand. Bill anticipated that I would be exhausted due to the long incline hike to his tower, and as a result, threw me his prepared flask of fresh, cold orange juice. I gratefully filled my boots and mouth with the tangy citrus. It felt real good on my dry palate. I restrained myself from polishing off the entire canister. I just wiped the rim and handed it back to Phil, and I thanked him for the drink. He invited me up into his tower to get better acquainted and tell me about our assignments and duties while we would be working together. As we had walked up the steps, I spotted the ATV at the foot of the tower. Phil saw me clock it. He chuckled a little awkwardly and felt the need to explain himself. Yeah, she's a nipper all right. Hey, sorry James, I would have come got you this morning, but I got called out on emergency. I almost felt a moment of empathy with Phil. I think we shared a hint of nerves when it came to making a good impression. I could tell he didn't want me to think that I just walked all the way out here while he sat in his butt with ATV outside. It's fine, Phil, don't worry about it. I gotta get used to these long walks if I'm gonna make it out here, haven't I? Anyway, what was the emergency? He smiled contently, knowing that I didn't have any bad feelings. Don't worry, I'll fly you back down to your cabin tonight, he said in a promising manner. Phil then seemed to take a moment before answering my question about the emergency that morning. As if trying to put all the pieces in front of him before explaining it to me, he sighed gently before speaking. This family had been camping in my zone, around 18 miles from here. I had been checking in on them each day. Yesterday morning, I headed up there and something was definitely... His hands motioned as if juggling a trio of invisible tennis balls, as if trying to find an appropriate word. Off. Yeah, off. I don't know how else to say it. What does off look like? I pressed. Everyone seemed a little spooked. They were asking if I knew of any other people camping in the area, or if I or any of the other rangers had come to check on their camp last night. Right. Why did they want to know that? The tabloid story of Danny Waldron seeing a man at night flash into my mind fuels my question. Well, I don't know. I did ask, but they just said never mind. I didn't pry. I probably should have. That last remark didn't sound good. Okay, so what happened this morning? What was the emergency? They're gone. Gone? Campsite's still there. So are their belongings, cooking equipment, the tent. What's left of it anyway? I froze in my tracks on the step that I was on, halting my ascent to his tower door. Jesus, do you know what happened? I have no earthly idea, son. I headed up there this morning around 8am, got there around 8.30. I knew something was off again right away, but very, very off. I stood there, remaining quiet, to make sure that I didn't halt his speech flowing. He continued. The previous two mornings I had headed up there, okay? So, they were all out around the stove, you know, cooking breakfast while the kids ran around. All that real nice family stuff, you know. 
Had the horrific images of the whispering man in the woods slaughtering this family in their sleep not been flashing in my head, then maybe I would have chuckled at Phil's nice family stuff comment. I nodded and gave him a subtle verbal cue to encourage him to continue. But when I got there yesterday, the adults were out but the kids were still in the tent asleep, and the adults seemed drained withdrawn, and like they hadn't had a good night's sleep. His tone of voice felt defeated. Either he felt he didn't ask enough questions the morning before the disappearances, or maybe this is a common occurrence that has taken its toll on this seasoned employee. The woman from head office had told me Phil was a veteran here at the National Park Service, 22 years. He would have been an employee back when Danny Waldron went missing too. I couldn't help but imagine what else Phil had seen in his time here at Wolf Lake. My attention came back to him as he continued his story. This morning though, I got up there this morning and saw the tent from the tree line. Jesus man, it was torn wide open and dragged to the side a little. Like something had ripped it open and dragged something out violently. My imagination continued to haunt me as we made our way into his tower. I was tempted to slap myself to put myself together but I resisted. I didn't want to look insane. I took a seat on the couch while Phil poured me a fresh cup of hot coffee, while he poured himself one too, and took a seat in his armchair opposite me. Torn open, I probed, unlike with a knife. It's hard to say. Got the sheriffs along with a few rangers up there now going through the scene, looking for the family and evidence. If I wasn't meeting you, I'd be out with them now. I didn't know Phil well enough to know if he was joking or he genuinely saw me as an inconvenience at this point. From what I've seen though, he was a decent guy so I gambled a bit of sarcastic humor. No, oh, thanks Phil. Nice to know I'm such a burden already. Oh, I didn't mean it like that, son. Hell, you think I want to be on my hands and knees in the earth looking for a dead body or some stuff? No, believe me, James. It is a pleasure to be here meeting you instead. Well, maybe a bit early on to think they're dead, don't you reckon? I wasn't letting them get away with that choice of phrase. I know they are, James. Trust me, son. I felt my face twitch and contort as my eyes blinked uncontrollably, as I appreciated the gravity of Phil's certainty. How do you know that they're dead? Maybe they just went for a hike and some animal tried to get in their tent while they were away. It's plausible, isn't it? I don't know if I really believe that in hindsight. I could clearly see Phil was a man who had seen a lot of dark things in his near quarter century working as a park ranger. Well, it's definitely plausible, kid. Likely, though, not at all. You seem real sure about this, Phil. I hope I'm wrong. I really do, but well, let's just say. This ain't the first time something like this has happened. He said that in a very hushed voice. There was no one around for miles. I found that odd. I didn't bring him up on it though. Well, yeah, I can imagine people go missing in the woods all the time. Dangerous place and all that. Easy to get lost, run into a bear, a wolf, or a mountain lion. Felix hailed sharply through his nostrils as he gently chuckled at my naivety. My son... I've been a part of the woods long enough. 
specifically Wolf Light, to know the difference between a person or group who just got themselves a little turned around out there, and those who have caught the attention of something diabolical. Phil's expression on his face as he completed his sentence told me that he knew he had said too much. He sighed and shook his head, cursing himself. My interpretation of the whispering man signaling for me to shh flashed in my mind. I shook it away. Something diabolical, I asked tentatively. Phil was looking at me intently for a few drawn out seconds, deciphering how he was going to answer my probing question, when suddenly his walkie-talkie crackled to life. I don't think either of us would ever admit it, but yeah, it shook us up. The sound of another ranger's voice pierced the tense, stifled atmosphere of Phil's watchtower. Hey, Phil, come in, Phil. You there, buddy? Phil pulled his walkie-talkie out of his belt holster while maintaining eye contact with me, as if telling me to sit, listen, and learn, because his point was about to be proven, and he knew it. Yeah, Alan, I'm here. You got an update on the Mispers. Phil never broke his gaze with mine as he let the harrowing details flow through into the room. We found the adults, kids, and nowhere to be seen. Just what we expected. The last sentence was said in the same hushed tone. That wasn't lost on me. They're dead. Phil's intense gaze shifted to a more defeated, pleading stare. His see-what-I-mean type of look still aimed directly at me. Yeah, very, um, are you alone or? For the first time, Phil broke his eye contact with me to look at his bedroom door. Yeah, two minutes, Alan. Sorry, I gotta take this. He exclaimed quickly before adding, Hey, do me a favor and knock up some more coffees. Irish. Whiskey's under the sink. He winked as he said this, obviously trying to lighten the mood. I nodded and smiled warmly before encouraging him to take the call. He had made his points and he clearly decided that I had heard enough for my first day. As I put the jar of coffee and pasteurized milk along with the large bottle of Jameson's on the counter, I could hear Phil and Alan talking over the radio in his tower bedroom. I hit the boil switch on the kettle to create some background noise so I could creep across the room and eavesdrop through the door without being heard. I covered the ear and not against the door and concentrated hard so I could hear both sides of the dialogue. It was clear that I had missed a large part of the conversation, but what I heard was along the lines of, Jesus, what did the police make of it this time? Not too much, but they have a theory. Discussed with that suit, Richard. The guy HQ sends any time we get something like this. He told me anything I had to say to the police had to go through him. He's a dick. Yeah, super dick. Do they want to talk to me? Yeah, Richard is actually heading to your tower at around 4 to take your statement. Damn, I got the new kid here. James, a nice guy. I'll bring him up to the site tomorrow and get you two acquainted. Yeah, this sounds good, but Richard says get rid of him before he gets there. Tells him that he'll be paid for the day, but he can go back to his cabin until tomorrow. Poor kid. We just got here. Sure, you've got time to get him home on the quad before that asshole gets to you. Yeah, plan on it. What's the theory then from the cops? It's the same MO as the last three. 
So the cops think it's a serial killer. Lo and behold, Richard wants us to back that up. Jesus. So the adults are displayed again. Yeah, me and Higgins recover in Zone 3. We had the county sheriffs with us and the dogs. The dogs just went haywire every time we tried to get them to follow the kid's scent. But man, when we held up the dad's baseball cap left at the scene, the dogs beelined three miles into the woods. Yeah. At this point, I was so equally enthralled and horrified that I didn't notice the volume of the voices getting louder as the source of the audio got closer to my eardrum. We found them all up in the tree. The door opened and I nearly fell inside the room. I looked up and that intense gaze of Phil's met with mine for the second time that day. His eyebrows raised, lips powdered in a slight frown. Let me stop you there, Alan. I'll radio back. Just gotta get James home. I smiled sheepishly with embarrassment. Coffee's ready. I cheekily attempted despite the conjurer having nothing upon it but a closed coffee jar and whiskey bottle. The kettle was boiled, though. I guess there was that. Phil chuckled. Yeah, it looks it. Look, kid, something's come up, as I'm sure you know. He said that last remark with playful sarcasm. I appreciated that. It put me at ease. I think he understood why I was so nosy. Me would have been, too. Um, yeah, I'll set off walking now. I might get back before dark. Phil shook his head with a gentle smile. You might be a nosy kid, but I like ya. Just put that whiskey away under the sink before that asshole gets here and I'll grab my ATV keys. I said I'd get you home and I'm a man of my word. I really liked Phil. He reminded me of my father. I put the whiskey under the sink and pushed it well out of sight. I made sure Richard wouldn't find anything that would get Phil in any sort of trouble. I picked up my bag and headed for the door. Phil fell in step with me as I passed Matt while we both made our way out of the tower. He slapped his hand on my shoulder. Besides, kid, there's no way I want you wandering around out here, alone, after dark. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.